Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is Chapter 58 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 58. For a few months I enjoyed what to me was an entirely new phase of existence, a butterfly idleness. Nothing to do, nobody to be responsible to, and untroubled with financial uneasiness. I fell in love with the most cordial and sociable city in the Union. After the sagebrush and alkali deserts of Washoe, San Francisco was paradise to me. I lived at the best hotel, exhibited my clothes in the most conspicuous places, infested the opera, and learned to seem enraptured with music, which oftener afflicted my ignorant ear than enchanted it, if I had had the vulgar honesty to confess it. However, I suppose I was not greatly worse than the most of my countrymen in that. I had longed to be a butterfly, and I was one at last. I attended private parties in sumptuous evening dress, simpered and aired my graces like a born bow, and polkered and shottished with a step peculiar to myself and the kangaroo. In a word, I kept the due state of a man worth a hundred thousand dollars, prospectively and likely to reach absolute affluence when that silver-mine sale should be ultimately achieved in the East. I spent money with a free hand, and meantime watched the stock sales with an interested eye, and looked to see what might happen in Nevada. Something very important happened. The property-holders of Nevada voted against the state constitution, but the folks who had nothing to lose were in the majority, and carried the measure over their heads. But, after all, it did not immediately look like a disaster, though unquestionably it was one. I hesitated, calculated the chances, and then concluded not to sell. Stocks went on rising, speculation went mad. Bankers, merchants, lawyers, doctors, mechanics, laborers, even the very washerwomen and servant-girls, were putting up their earnings on silver stocks, and every sun that rose in the morning went down on paupers enriched and rich men beggared. What a gambling carnival it was! Gould and Curry soared to six thousand three hundred dollars a foot, and then, all of a sudden, out went the bottom, and everything and everybody went to ruin and destruction. The wreck was complete. The bubble scarcely left a microscopic moisture behind it. I was an early beggar, and a thorough one. My hoarded stocks were not worth the paper they were printed on. I threw them all away. I, the cheerful idiot, that had been squandering money like water, and thought myself beyond the reach of misfortune, had not now as much as fifty dollars when I gathered together my various debts and paid them. I removed from the hotel to a very private boarding-house. I took a reporter's berth and went to work. I was not entirely broken in spirit, for I was building confidently on the sale of the silver mine in the East. But I could not hear from Dan. My letters miscarried or were not answered. One day I did not feel vigorous, and remained away from the office. The next day I went down toward noon as usual, and found a note on my desk, 
which had been there twenty-four hours. It was signed Marshall, the Virginia reporter, and contained a request that I should call at the hotel and see him and a friend or two that night, as they would sail for the east in the morning. A postscript added that their errand was a big mining speculation. I was hardly ever so sick in my life. I abused myself for leaving Virginia and entrusting to another man a matter I ought to have attended to myself. I abused myself for remaining away from the office on the one day of all the year that I should have been there. And thus, berating myself, I trotted a mile to the steamer wharf and arrived just in time to be late. The ship was in the stream and under way. I comforted myself with the thought that maybe the speculation would amount to nothing, poor comfort at best and then went back to my slavery, resolved to put up with my thirty-five dollars a week and forget all about it. A month afterward I enjoyed my first earthquake. It was one which was long called the Great Earthquake, and is doubtless so distinguished till this day. It was just afternoon, on a bright October day. I was coming down Third Street, the only objects in motion anywhere in sight in that thickly built and populous quarter were a man in a buggy behind me and a street-car wending slowly up the cross-street. Otherwise all was solitude and a Sabbath stillness. As I turned the corner around a frame-house there was a great rattle and jar, and it occurred to me that here was an item. No doubt a fight in that house. Before I could turn and seek the door there came a really terrific shock. The ground seemed to roll under me in waves, interrupted by a violent joggling up and down and there was a heavy grinding noise, as of brick houses rubbing together. I fell up against the frame house and hurt my elbow. I knew what it was now, and from mere repertorial instinct, nothing else, I took out my watch and noted the time of day. At that moment a third and still severer shock came, and as I reeled about on the pavement trying to keep my footing, I saw a sight. The entire front of a tall four-story brick building in Third Street sprung outward like a door and fell sprawling across the street, raising a dust like a great volume of smoke. And here came the buggy, overboard went the man, and in less time than I can tell it the vehicle was distributed in small fragments along three hundred yards of the street. One could have fancied that somebody had fired a charge of chair-rounds and rags down the thoroughfare. The street-car had stopped. The horses were rearing and plunging. The passengers were pouring out at both ends, and one fat man had crashed halfway through a glass window on one side of the car, got wedged fast, and was squirming and screaming like an impaled madman. Every door of every house, as far as the eye could reach, was vomiting a stream of human beings, and almost before one could execute a wink and begin another, there was a massed multitude of people stretching in endless procession down every street my position commanded. Never was solemn solitude turned into teeming life quicker. Of the wonders wrought by the great earthquake, these were all that came under my eye, but the tricks it did elsewhere, and far and wide over the town, made toothsome gossip for nine days. The destruction of property was trifling, the injury to it was widespread and somewhat serious. The curiosities of the earthquake were simply endless. Gentlemen and ladies who were sick, or were taking a siesta, or had dissipated till a late hour, and were making up lost sleep, thronged into the public streets in all sorts of queer apparel, and some without any at all. One woman, who had been washing a naked child, 
ran down the street holding it by the ankles as if it were a dressed turkey. Prominent citizens, who were supposed to keep the Sabbath strictly, rushed out of saloons in their shirt-sleeves with billiard cues in their hands. Dozens of men with necks swathed in napkins rushed from barber-shops, lathered to the eyes, or with one cheek clean-shaved and the other still bearing a hairy stubble. Horses broke from stables, and a frightened dog rushed up a short attic ladder and out on to a roof, and when his scare was over had not the nerve to go down again the same way he had gone up. A prominent editor flew downstairs in the principal hotel, with nothing on but one brief undergarment, met a chambermaid, and exclaimed, "'Oh, what shall I do? Where shall I go?' She responded with naive serenity, "'If you have no choice, you might try a clothing store.' A certain foreign consul's lady was the acknowledged leader of fashion, and every time she appeared in anything new or extraordinary the ladies in the vicinity made a raid on their husbands' purses and arrayed themselves similarly. One man, who had suffered considerably and growled accordingly, was standing at the window when the shocks came, and the next instant the consul's wife, just out of the bath, fled by with no other apology for clothing than a bath-towel. The sufferer rose superior to the terrors of the earthquake, and said to his wife, "'Now that is something like. Get out your towel, my dear.' The plastering that fell from ceilings in San Francisco that day would have covered several acres of ground. For some days afterward groups of eyeing and pointing men stood about many a building, looking at long zigzag cracks that extended from the eaves to the ground. Four feet of the tops of three chimneys on one house were broken square off and turned around in such a way as to completely stop the draft. A crack a hundred feet long gaped open six inches wide in the middle of one street, and then shut together again with such force as to ridge up the meeting earth like a slender grave. A lady, sitting in her rocking and quaking parlor, saw the wall part at the ceiling, open and shut twice, like a mouth, and then drop the end of a brick on the floor like a tooth. She was a woman easily disgusted with foolishness, and she arose and went out of there. One lady who was coming downstairs was astonished to see a bronze Hercules lean forward on its pedestal as if to strike her with its club. They both reached the bottom of the flight at the same time, the woman insensible from the fright. Her child, born some little time afterward, was club-footed. However, on second thought, if the reader sees any coincidence in this, he must do it at his own risk. The first shock brought down two or three huge organ-pipes in one of the churches. The minister, with uplifted hands, was just closing the services. He glanced up, hesitated, and said, "'However, we will omit the benediction,' and the next instant there was a vacancy in the atmosphere where he had stood. After the first shock, an Oakland minister said, "'Keep your seats. There is no better place to die than this,' and added, after the third, uh, "'But outside is good enough,' and then he skipped out the back door. Such another destruction of mantle ornaments and toilet bottles as the earthquake created San Francisco never saw before. There was hardly a girl or a matron in the city but suffered losses of this kind. Suspended pictures were thrown down, but oftener still, by a curious freak of the earthquake's humor, they were whirled completely around with their faces to the wall. There was great difference of opinion at first as to the course or direction the earthquake traveled, but water that splashed out of various tanks and buckets settled that. 
thousands of people were made so seasick by the rolling and pitching of floors and streets that they were weak and bedridden for hours and some few for even days afterward hardly an individual escaped nausea entirely the queer earthquake episodes that formed the staple of san francisco gossip for the next week would fill a much larger book than this and so i will diverge from the subject by and by in the due course of things i picked up a copy of the enterprise one day and fell under this cruel blow nevada mines in new york g m marshall sheba hoors and amos h rose who left san francisco last july for new york city with ores from mines in pinewood district humboldt county and on the reese river range have disposed of a mine containing six thousand feet and called the pine mountains consolidated for the sum of three million dollars the stamps on the deed which is now on its way to humboldt county from new york for record amounted to three thousand dollars which is said to be the largest amount of stamps ever placed on one document a working capital of one million dollars has been paid into the treasury and machinery has already been purchased for a large quartz mill which will be put up as soon as possible the stock in this company is all full paid and entirely unaccessible the ores of the mines in this district somewhat resemble those of the sheba mine in humboldt sheba hurst the discoverer of the mines with his friends corralled all the best leads and all the land and timber they desired before making public their whereabouts ores from there assayed in this city showed them to be exceedingly rich in silver and gold silver predominating there is an abundance of wood and water in the district we are glad to know that new york capital has been enlisted in the development of the mines of this region having seen the ores and assays we are satisfied that the mines of the district are very valuable anything but wildcat once more native imbecility had carried the day and i had lost a million it was the blind lead over again let us not dwell on this miserable matter if i were inventing these things i could be wonderfully humorous over them but they are too true to be talked of with hearty levity even at this distant day true and yet not exactly as given in the above figures possibly i saw marshall months afterward and although he had plenty of money he did not claim to have captured an entire million in fact i gathered that he had not then received fifty thousand dollars beyond that figure his fortune appeared to consist of uncertain vast expectations rather than prodigious certainties however when the above item appeared in print i put full faith in it and incontinently wilted and went to seed under it suffice it that i so lost heart and so yielded myself up to repinings and sighings and foolish regrets that i neglected my duties and became about worthless as a reporter for a brisk newspaper and at last one of the proprietors took me aside with a charity i still remember with considerable respect and gave me an opportunity to resign my berth and so save myself the disgrace of a dismissal end of chapter fifty eight this is chapter fifty nine of roughing it this is a librivox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain Chapter 59 For a time I wrote literary screeds for the golden era. 
c h webb had established a very excellent literary weekly called the californian but high merit was no guarantee of success it languished and he sold out to three printers and bret hart became editor at twenty dollars a week and i was employed to contribute an article a week at twelve dollars but the journal still languished and the printers sold out to captain ogden a rich man and a pleasant gentleman who chose to amuse himself with such an expensive luxury without much caring about the cost of it when he grew tired of the novelty he resold to the printers the paper presently died a peaceful death and i was out of work again i would not mention these things but for the fact that they so aptly illustrate the ups and downs that characterize life on the pacific coast a man could hardly stumble into such a variety of queer vicissitudes in any other country for two months my sole occupation was avoiding acquaintances for during that time i did not earn a penny or buy an article of any kind or pay my board i became a very adept at slinking i slunk from back street to back street i slunk away from approaching faces that looked familiar i slunk to my meals ate them humbly and with a mute apology for every mouthful i robbed my generous landlady of and at midnight after wanderings that were but slinkings away from cheerfulness and light i slunk to my bed i felt meaner and lowlier and more despicable than the worms during all this time i had but one piece of money a silver ten-cent piece and i held to it and would not spend it on any account lest the consciousness coming strong upon me that i was entirely penniless might suggest suicide i had pawned everything but the clothes i had on so i clung to my dime desperately till it was smooth with handling however i am forgetting i did have one other occupation beside that of slinking it was the entertaining of a collector and being entertained by him who had in his hands the virginia banker's bill for forty-six dollars which i had loaned my schoolmate the prodigal this man used to call regularly once a week and dun me and sometimes oftener he did it from sheer force of habit for he knew he could get nothing he would get out his bill calculate the interest for me at five per cent a month and show me clearly that there was no attempt at fraud in it and no mistakes and then plead and argue and done with all his might for any sum any little trifle even a dollar even half a dollar on account then his duty was accomplished and his conscience free he immediately dropped the subject there always got out a couple of cigars and divided put his feet in the window and then we would have a long luxurious talk about everything and everybody and he would furnish me a world of curious dunning adventures out of the ample store in his memory by and by he would clap his hat on his head shake hands and say briskly well business is business can't stay with you always and was off in a second the idea of pining for a dun and yet i used to long for him to come and would get as uneasy as any mother if the day went by without his visit when i was expecting him but he never collected that bill at last nor any part of it i lived to pay it to the banker myself misery loves company now and then at night in out-of-the-way dimly lighted places i found myself happening on another child of misfortune he looked so seedy and forlorn so homeless and friendless and forsaken that i yearned toward him as a brother i wanted to claim kinship with him 
and go about and enjoy our wretchedness together. The drawing toward each other must have been mutual. At any rate, we got to falling together oftener, though still seemingly by accident, and although we did not speak or evince any recognition, I think the dull anxiety passed out of both of us when we saw each other, and then for several hours we would idle along contentedly, wide apart, and glancing furtively in at home lights and fireside gatherings, out of the night shadows, and very much enjoying our dumb companionship. Finally we spoke, and were inseparable after that, for our woes were identical, almost. He had been a reporter, too, and lost his birth, and this was his experience, as nearly as I can recollect it. After losing his birth he had gone down, 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 with never a halt, from a boarding-house on Russian Hill to a boarding-house in Kearney Street, from thence to Dupont, from thence to a low sailor-den, and from thence to lodgings in goods-boxes and empty hogsheads near the wharves. Then, for a while, he had gained a meagre living by sewing up bursted sacks of grain on the piers. When that failed, he had found food here and there, as chance threw it in his way. He had ceased to show his face in daylight now, for a reporter knows everybody, rich and poor, high and low, and cannot well avoid familiar faces in the broad light of day. This mendicant Blucher, I call him that for convenience, was a splendid creature. He was full of hope, pluck, and philosophy. He was well-read, and a man of cultivated taste. He had a bright wit, and was a master of satire. His kindliness and his generous spirit made him royal in my eyes, and changed his curbstone seat to a throne, and his damaged hat to a crown. He had an adventure once which sticks fast in my memory as the most pleasantly grotesque that ever touched my sympathies. He had been without a penny for two months. He had shirked about obscure streets, among friendly dim lights, till the thing had become second nature to him, but at last he was driven abroad in daylight. The cause was sufficient. He had not tasted food for forty-eight hours, and he could not endure the misery of his hunger in idle hiding. He came along a back street, glowering at the loaves and bake-shop windows, and feeling that he could trade his life away for a morsel to eat. The sight of the bread doubled his hunger, but it was good to look at it anyhow, and imagine what one might do if one only had it. Presently, in the middle of the street, he saw a shining spot, looked again, did not, and could not believe his eyes, turned away, to try them, then looked again. It was a verity, no vain, hunger-inspired delusion. It was a silver dime. He snatched it, gloated over it, doubted it, bit it, found it genuine, choked his heart down, and smothered a hallelujah. Then he looked around, saw that nobody was looking at him, threw the dime down where it was before, and walked away a few steps, and approached again, pretending he did not know it was there, so that he could re-enjoy the luxury of finding it. He walked around it, viewing it from different points, then sauntered about with his hands in his pockets, looking up at the signs, and now and then glancing at it, and feeling the old thrill again. Finally he took it up and went away, fondling it in his pocket. He idled through unfrequented streets, stopping in doorways and corners to take it out and look at it. By and by he went home to his lodgings, an empty Queensware hogshead, and employed himself till night trying to make up his mind what to buy with it. But it was hard to do. 
to get the most for it was the idea he knew that at the miner's restaurant he could get a plate of beans and a piece of bread for ten cents or a fish-ball and some few trifles but they gave no bread with one fish-ball there at french pete's he could get a veal cutlet plain and some radishes and bread for ten cents or a cup of coffee a pint at least and a slice of bread but the slice was not thick enough by the eighth of an inch and sometimes they were still more criminal than that in the cutting of it at seven o'clock his hunger was wolfish and still his mind was not made up he turned out and went up merchant street still ciphering and chewing a bit of stick as is the way of starving men he passed before the lights of martin's restaurant the most aristocratic in the city and stopped it was a place where he had often dined in better days and martin knew him well standing aside just out of the range of the light he worshipped the quails and steaks in the show-window and imagined that maybe the fairy times were not gone yet and some prince in disguise would come along presently and tell him to go in there and take whatever he wanted he chewed his stick with a hungry interest as he warmed to his subject just at this juncture he was conscious of someone at his side sure enough and then a finger touched his arm he looked up over his shoulder and saw an apparition a very allegory of hunger it was a man six feet high gaunt unshaven hung with rags with a haggard face and sunken cheeks and eyes that pleaded piteously this phantom said come with me please he locked his arm in blucher's and walked up the street to where the passengers were few and the light not strong and then facing about put out his hands in a beseeching way and said friend stranger look at me life is easy to you you go about placid and content as i did once in my day you have been there and eaten your sumptuous supper and picked your teeth and hummed your tune and thought your pleasant thoughts and said to yourself it is a good world but you've never suffered you don't know what trouble is you don't know what misery is nor hunger look at me stranger have pity on a poor friendless homeless dog as god is my judge i have not tasted food for eight and forty hours look in my eyes and see if i lie give me the least trifle in the world to keep me from starving anything twenty-five cents do it stranger do it please it will be nothing to you but life to me do it and i will go down on my knees and lick the dust before you i will kiss your footprints i will worship the very ground you walk on only twenty-five cents i am famishing perishing starving by inches for god's sake don't desert me blucher was bewildered and touched too stirred to the depths he reflected thought again then an idea struck him and he said come with me he took the outcast's arm walked him down to martin's restaurant seated him at a marble table placed the bill of fare before him and said order what you want friend charge it to me mr martin all right mr blucher said martin then blucher stepped back and leaned against the counter and watched the man stow away cargo after cargo of buckwheat cakes at seventy-five cents a plate cup after cup of coffee and porter-house steaks worth two dollars apiece and when six dollars and a half worths of destruction had been accomplished and the stranger's hunger appeased blucher went down to french pete's bought a veal cutlet plain a slice of bread and three radishes with his dime 
and set to and feasted like a king. Take the episode all around, it was as odd as any that can be culled from the myriad curiosities of Californian life, perhaps. End of chapter 59 This is chapter 60 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 60. By and by, an old friend of mine, a miner, came down from one of the decayed mining camps of Tuolumne, California, and I went back with him. We lived in a small cabin on a verdant hillside, and there were not five other cabins in view over the wide expanse of hill and forest. Yet a flourishing city of two or three thousand population had occupied this grassy dead solitude during the flush times of twelve or fifteen years ago, and where our cabin stood had once been the heart of the teeming hive, the center of the city. When the mines gave out, the town fell into decay, and in a few years wholly disappeared. Streets, dwellings, shops, everything and left no sign. The grassy slopes were as green and smooth and desolate of life as if they had never been disturbed. The mere handful of miners still remaining had seen the town spring up, spread, grow and flourish in its pride, and they had seen it sicken and die, and pass away like a dream. With it their hopes had died, and their zest of life. They had long ago resigned themselves to their exile, and ceased to correspond with their distant friends, or turn longing eyes toward their early homes. They had accepted banishment, forgotten the world, and been forgotten of the world. They were far from telegraphs and railroads, and they stood, as it were, in a living grave, dead to the events that stirred the globe's great populations, dead to the common interests of men isolated and outcast from brotherhood with their kind. It was the most singular, and almost the most touching and melancholy exile that fancy can imagine. One of my associates in this locality, for two or three months, was a man who had had a university education. But now, for eighteen years, he had decayed there by inches, a bearded, rough-clad, clay-stained miner, and at times, among his sighings and soliloquizing, he unconsciously interjected vaguely remembered Latin and Greek sentences. Dead and musty tongues, meat vehicles for the thoughts of one whose dreams were all of the past, whose life was a failure, a tired man, burdened with the present, and indifferent to the future, a man without ties, hopes, interests, waiting for the rest and the end. In that one little corner of California is found a species of mining which is seldom or never mentioned in print. It is called pocket-mining, and I am not aware that any of it is done outside of that little corner. The gold is not evenly distributed through the surface dirt, as in ordinary placer mines, but is collected in little spots, and they are very wide apart and exceedingly hard to find. But when you do find one, you reap a rich and sudden harvest. There are not now more than twenty pocket-miners in that entire little region. I think I know every one of them personally. I have known one of them to hunt patiently about the hillsides every day for eight months without finding gold enough to make a snuff-box, his grocery bill running up relentlessly all the time, and then find a pocket and take out of it two thousand dollars in two dips of his shovel. I have known him to take out three thousand dollars in two hours, and go and 
pay up every cent of his indebtedness, then enter on a dazzling spree that finished the last of his treasure before the night was gone. And the next day he bought his groceries on credit as usual, and shouldered his pan and shovel, and went off to the hills, hunting pockets again happy and content. This is the most fascinating of all the different kinds of mining, and furnishes a very handsome percentage of victims to the lunatic asylum. Pocket-hunting is an ingenious process. You take a spade full of earth from the hillside, and put it in a large tin pan, and dissolve and wash it gradually away till nothing is left but a teaspoonful of fine sediment. Whatever gold was in that earth has remained, because, being the heaviest, it has sought the bottom. Among the sediments you will find half a dozen yellow particles no larger than pinheads. You are delighted. You move off to one side and wash another pan. You find gold again. You move to one side further and wash a third pan. If you find no gold this time, you are delighted again, because you know you are on the right scent. You lay an imaginary plan, shaped like a fan, with its handle up the hill. For just where the end of the handle is, you argue that the rich deposit lies hidden, whose vagrant grains of gold have escaped and been washed down the hill, spreading farther and farther apart as they wandered. And so you proceed up the hill, washing the earth and narrowing your lines every time the absence of gold in the pan shows that you are outside the spread of the fan. And at last, twenty yards up the hill, your lines have converged to a point. A single foot from that point you cannot find any gold. Your breath comes short and quick. You are feverish with excitement. The dinner-bell may ring its clapper off. You pay no attention. Friends may die. Weddings transpire. Houses burn down. They are nothing to you. You sweat and dig and delve with a frantic interest, and all at once you strike it. Up comes a spadeful of earth and quartz that is all lovely with soiled lumps and leaves and sprays of gold. Sometimes that one spadeful is all five hundred dollars, and sometimes the nest contains ten thousand dollars, and it takes you three or four days to get it all out. The pocket-miners tell of one nest that yielded sixty thousand dollars, and two men exhausted it in two weeks, and then sold the ground for ten thousand dollars to a party who never got three hundred dollars out of it afterward. The hogs are good pocket-hunters. All the summer they root around the bushes, and turn up a thousand little piles of dirt. And then the miners long for the rains, for the rains beat upon these little piles and wash them down and expose the gold, possibly right over a pocket. Two pockets were found in this way by the same man in one day. One had five thousand dollars in it, and the other eight thousand dollars. That man could appreciate it, for he hadn't had a cent for about a year. In Tuolumne lived two miners who used to go to the neighboring village in the afternoon and return every night with household supplies. Part of the distance they traversed a trail, and nearly always sat down to rest on a great boulder that lay beside the path. In the course of thirteen years they had worn that boulder tolerably smooth, sitting on it. By and by two vagrant Mexicans came along and occupied the seat. They began to amuse themselves by chipping off flakes from the boulder with a sledgehammer. They examined one of these flakes and found it rich with gold. That boulder paid them eight hundred dollars afterward. But the aggravating circumstance was that these greasers knew that there must be more gold where that boulder came from, and so they went panning up the hill and found 
what was probably the richest pocket that region has yet produced. It took three months to exhaust it, and it yielded a hundred and twenty thousand dollars. The two American miners who used to sit on the boulder are poor yet, and they take turnabout in getting up early in the morning to curse those Mexicans. And when it comes down to pure ornamental cursing, the Native American is gifted above the sons of men. I have dwelt at some length upon this matter of pocket-mining, because it is a subject that is seldom referred to in print, and therefore I judged that it would have for the reader that interest which naturally attaches to novelty. End of chapter 60 This is chapter 61 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 61 One of my comrades there, another of those victims of eighteen years of unrequited toil and blighted hopes, was one of the gentlest spirits that ever bore its patient cross in a weary exile. Grave and simple Dick Baker, pocket-miner of Dead House Gulch. He was forty-six, gray as a rat, earnest, thoughtful, slenderly educated, slouchily dressed, and clay-soiled, but his heart was finer metal than any gold his shovel ever brought to light. Than any, indeed, that ever was mined or minted. Whenever he was out of luck and a little downhearted, he would fall to mourning over the loss of a wonderful cat he used to own, for where women and children are not, men of kindly impulses take up with pets, for they must love something, and he always spoke of the strange sagacity of that cat with the air of a man who believed in his secret heart that there was something human about it maybe even supernatural. I heard him talking about this animal once. He said, "'Gentlemen, I used to have a cat here by the name of Tom Quartz, which you'd a took an interest in, I reckon. Most anybody would. I had him here eight year, and he was the remarkablest cat I ever see. He was a large gray one of the Tom species, and he had more hard, natural sense than any man in this camp, and the power of dignity. He wouldn't let the governor of California be familiar with him. He never catched a rat in his life, appeared to be above it. He never cared for nothing but mining. He knowed more about mining, that cat did, than any man I ever, ever see. You couldn't tell him nothing about placer diggings, and as for pocket mining, why, he was just born for it. He would dig out after me and Jim when we went over the hills prospecting, and he would trot along behind us for as much as five mile, if we went so fur. And he had the best judgment about mining ground. Why, you never see anything like it. When we went to work, he'd scatter a glance around, and if he didn't think much of the indications, he would give a look as much to say, Well, I'll have to get you to excuse me, and without another word, he'd heist his nose into the air and shove for home. But if the ground suited him, he would lay low and keep dark till the first pan was washed, and then he would sidle up and take a look, and if there was about six or seven grains of gold, he was satisfied. He didn't want no better prospect than that. And then he would lie down on our coats and snore like a steamboat, till we'd struck the pocket, and then get up and superintend. 
he was nearly lightning on superintending well by and by up comes this yer quartz excitement everybody was into it everybody was pickin and blastin instead of shovelin dirt on the hillside everybody was puttin down a shaft instead of scrapin the surface nothin would do jim but we must tackle the ledges too and so we did we commenced puttin down a shaft and tom quartz he begin to wonder what in the dickens it was all about he hadn't ever seen any mining like that before and he was all upset as you may say he couldn't come to a right understanding of it no way it was too many for him he was down on it too you bet you he was down on it powerful and always appeared to consider it the cussedest foolishness out but that cat you know was always again new-fangled arrangements somehow he never could abide em you know how it is with old habits but by and by tom quartz begin to git sort of reconciled a little though he never could altogether understand that eternal sinkin of a shaft and never pannin out anything at last he got to comin down in the shaft hisself to try to cipher it out and when he'd git the blues and feel kind of scruffy and aggravated and disgusted knowin as he did that the bills was runnin up all the time and we weren't makin a cent he would curl up on a gunny-sack in a corner and go to sleep well one day when the shaft was down about eight foot the rock got so hard that we had to put in a blast the first blastin we'd ever done since tom quartz was born and then we lit the fuse and clum out and got off about fifty yards and forgot and left tom quartz sound asleep on the gunny-sack in about a minute we seen a puff of smoke burst up out of the hole and then everything let go with an awful crash and about four million ton of rocks and dirt and smoke and the splinters shot up about a mile and a half into the air and by george right in the dead center of it was old tom quartz a-goin end over end and a-snortin and a-sneezin and a-clawin and a-reachin for things like all possessed but it weren't no use you know it weren't no use and that was the last we see of him for about two minutes and a half and then all of a sudden it begin to rain rocks and rubbage and directly he come down kerwop about ten foot off where we stood well i reckon he was perhaps the orniest looking beast you ever see one ear was sot back on his neck and his tail was stove up and his eye winkers was swinged off and he was all blacked up with powder and smoke and all sloppy with mud and slush from one end to the other well sir it weren't no use to try to apologize we couldn't say a word he took a sort of a disgusted look at hisself and then he looked at us and it was just exactly the same as if he had said gents maybe you think it's smart to take advantage of a cat that ain't had no experience of quartz mining but i think different and then he turned on his heel and marched off home without ever saying another word now, that was just his style and maybe you won't believe it but after that you never see a cat so prejudiced again quartz mining as what he was and by and by when he did get to going down in the shaft again you'd have been astonished at his sagacity the minute we'd tetch off a blast and the fuse begin to sizzle he'd give a look as much to say well i'll have to get you to excuse me and it was surprising the way he'd shin out of that hole and and go for a tree sagacity it ain't no name for it twas inspiration i said well mr baker his prejudice against quartz mining was remarkable considering how he came by it couldn't you ever cure him of it 
cure him no when tom quartz was sot once he was always sot and you might have blowed him up as much as three million times and you'd never a broken him of his cussed prejudice agin quartz mining the affection and the pride that lit up baker's face when he delivered this tribute to the firmness of his humble friend of other days will always be a vivid memory with me at the end of two months we had never struck a pocket we had panned up and down the hillsides till they looked ploughed like a field we could have put in a crop of grain then but there would have been no way to get it to market we got many good prospects but when the gold gave out in the pan and we dug down hoping and longing we found only emptiness the pocket that should have been there was as barren as our own at last we shouldered our pans and shovels and struck out over the hills to try new localities we prospected around angel's camp in calaveras county during three weeks but had no success then we wandered on foot among the mountains sleeping under the trees at night for the weather was mild but still we remained as scentless as the last rose of summer that is a poor joke but it is in pathetic harmony with the circumstances since we were so poor ourselves in accordance with the custom of the country our door had always stood open and our board welcome to tramping miners they drifted along nearly every day and jumped their paused shovel by the threshold and took potluck with us and now on our own tramp we never found cold hospitality our wanderings were wide and in many directions and now i could give the reader a vivid description of the big trees and the marvels of yosemite but what has this reader done to me that i should persecute him i will deliver him into the hands of less conscientious tourists and take his blessing let me be charitable though i fail in all virtues else note some of the phrases in the above are mining technicalities purely and may be a little obscure to the general reader in placer diggings the gold is scattered all through the surface dirt in pocket diggings it is concentrated in one little spot in quartz the gold is in a solid continuous vein of rock enclosed between distinct walls of some other kind of stone and this is the most laborious and expensive of all the different kinds of mining prospecting is hunting for a placer indications are signs of its presence panning out refers to the washing process by which the grains of gold are separated from the dirt a prospect is what one finds in the first panful of dirt and its value determines whether it is a good or a bad prospect and whether it is worth while to tarry there or seek further end of chapter sixty one This is Chapter 62 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 62 After a three months' absence, I found myself in San Francisco again, without a cent. When my credit was about exhausted, for I had become too mean and lazy now to work on a morning paper, and there were no vacancies on the evening journals, I was created San Francisco correspondent of the Enterprise, and at the end of five months I was out of debt, 
but my interest in my work was gone. For my correspondence being a daily one, without rest or respite, I got unspeakably tired of it. I wanted another change. The vagabond instinct was strong upon me. Fortune favored, and I got a new berth, and a delightful one. It was to go down to the Sandwich Islands, and write some letters for the Sacramento Union, an excellent journal, and liberal with employees. We sailed in the propeller Ajax, in the middle of winter. The almanac called it winter, distinctly enough, but the weather was a compromise between spring and summer. Six days out of port, it became summer altogether. We had some thirty passengers, among them a cheerful soul by the name of Williams, and three sea-worn old whale-ship captains going down to join their vessels. These latter played euchre in the smoking-room day and night, drank astonishing quantities of raw whisky without being in the least affected by it, and were the happiest people I think I ever saw. And then there was the old admiral, a retired whaleman. He was a roaring, terrific combination of wind and lightning and thunder, and earnest whole-souled profanity. But, nevertheless, he was tender-hearted as a girl. He was a raving, deafening, devastating typhoon, laying waste the cowering seas, but with an unvexed refuge in the center where all comers were safe and at rest. Nobody could know the admiral without liking him, and in a sudden and dire emergency I think no friend of his would know which to choose, to be cursed by him or prayed for by a less efficient person. His title of admiral was more strictly official than any ever worn by a naval officer before or since, perhaps, for it was the voluntary offering of a whole nation, and came direct from the people themselves, without any intermediate red tape, the people of the Sandwich Islands. It was a title that came to him freighted with affection and honor, and appreciation of his unpretending merit, and in testimony of the genuineness of the title, it was publicly ordained that an exclusive flag should be devised for him, and used solely to welcome his coming, and wave him Godspeed in his going. From that time forth, whenever his ship was signaled in the offing, or he catted his anchor and stood out to sea, that ensign streamed from the royal halyards on the Parliament House, and the nation lifted their hats to it with spontaneous accord. Yet he had never fired a gun or fought a battle in his life. When I knew him on board the Ajax, he was seventy-two years old, and had ploughed the salt water sixty-one of them. For sixteen years he had gone in and out of the harbor of Honolulu in command of a whale-ship, and for sixteen more had been captain of a San Francisco and Sandwich Island passenger packet, and had never had an accident or lost a vessel. The simple natives knew him for a friend who never failed them, and regarded him as children regard a father. It was a dangerous thing to oppress them when the roaring admiral was around. Two years before I knew the admiral, he had retired from the sea on a competence, and sworn a colossal nine-jointed oath that he would never go within smelling distance of the salt water again as long as he lived, and he had conscientiously kept it, that is to say, he considered he had kept it, and it would have been more than dangerous to suggest to him, even in the gentlest way, that making eleven long sea voyages as a passenger during the two years that had transpired since he retired, was only keeping the general spirit of it, and not the strict letter. 
the admiral knew only one narrow line of conduct to pursue in any and all cases where there was a fight and that was to shoulder his way straight in without an inquiry as to the rights or the merits of it and take the part of the weaker side and this was the reason why he was always sure to be present at the trial of any universally execrated criminal to oppress and intimidate the jury with a vindictive pantomime of what he would do to them if he ever caught them out of the box and this was why harried cats and outlawed dogs that knew him confidently took sanctuary under his chair in time of trouble in the beginning he was the most frantic and bloodthirsty union man that drew breath in the shadow of the flag but the instant the southerners began to go down before the sweep of the northern armies he ran up the confederate colors and from that time till the end was a rampant and inexorable secessionist he hated intemperance with a more uncompromising animosity than any individual i have ever met of either sex and he was never tired of storming against it and beseeching friends and strangers alike to be wary and drink with moderation and yet if any creature had been guileless enough to intimate that his absorbing nine gallons of straight whisky during our voyage was any fraction short of rigid or inflexible abstemiousness in that self-same moment the old man would have spun him to the uttermost parts of the earth in the whirlwind of his wrath mind i am not saying his whisky ever affected his head or his legs for it did not in even the slightest degree he was a capacious container but he did not hold enough for that he took a level tumbler full of whisky every morning before he put his clothes on to sweeten his bilge water he said he took another after he got the most of his clothes on to settle his mind and give him his bearings he then shaved and put on a clean shirt after which he recited the lord's prayer in a fervent thundering bass that shook the ship to her kelson and suspended all conversation in the main cabin then at this stage being invariably by the head or by the stern or listed to port or starboard he took one more to put him on an even keel so that he would mind his hellum and not miss stays and go about every time he came up in the wind and now his stateroom door swung open and the sun of his benignant face beamed redly out upon men and women and children and he roared his shipments ahoy in a way that was calculated to wake the dead and precipitate the final resurrection and forth he strode a picture to look at and a presence to enforce attention stalwart and portly not a gray hair broad-brimmed slouch hat semi-sailor toggery of blue navy flannel roomy and ample a stately expanse of shirt-front and a liberal amount of black silk neckcloth tied with a sailor-knot large chain and imposing seals impending from his fob awe-inspiring feet and a hand like a hand of providence as his wailing brethren expressed it wristbands and sleeves pushed back halfway to the elbow out of respect for the warm weather and exposing hairy arms gaudy with red and blue anchors ships and goddesses of liberty tattooed in india ink but these details were only secondary matters his face was the lodestone that chained the eye it was a sultry disk glowing determinately out through a weather-beaten mask of mahogany and studded with warts seamed with scars 
blazed all over with unfailing fresh slips of the razor, and with cheery eyes under shaggy brows, contemplating the world from over the back of a gnarled crag of a nose that loomed vast and lonely out of the undulating immensity that spread away from its foundation. At his heels frisked the darling of his bachelor estate, his terrier Fan, a creature no larger than a squirrel. The main part of his daily life was occupied in looking after Fan in a motherly way, and doctoring her for a hundred ailments which existed only in his imagination. The Admiral seldom read newspapers, and when he did, he never believed anything they said. He read nothing, and believed in nothing, but the Old Guard, a secession periodical published in New York. He carried a dozen copies of it with him, always, and referred to them for all required information. If it was not there, he supplied it himself, out of a bountiful fancy, inventing history, names, dates, and everything else necessary to make his point good in an argument. Consequently, he was a formidable antagonist in a dispute. Whenever he swung clear of the record and began to create history, the enemy was helpless and had to surrender. Indeed, the enemy could not keep from betraying some little spark of indignation at his manufactured history, and when it came to indignation, that was the Admiral's very best hold. He was always ready for a political argument, and if nobody started one he would do it himself. With his third retort his temper would begin to rise, and within five minutes he would be blowing a gale, and within fifteen his smoking-room audience would be utterly stormed away and the old man left solitary and alone, banging the table with his fist, kicking the chairs, and roaring a hurricane of profanity. It got so, after a while, that whenever the admiral approached, with politics in his eye, the passengers would drop out with quiet accord, afraid to meet him, and he would camp on a deserted field. But he found his match at last, and before a full company. At one time or another everybody had entered the lists against him and been routed, except the quiet passenger Williams. He had never been able to get an expression of opinion out of him on politics. But now, just as the Admiral drew near the door and the company were about to slip out, Williams said, "'Admiral, are you certain about that circumstance concerning the clergyman you mentioned the other day?' referring to a piece of the Admiral's manufactured history. Every one was amazed at the man's rashness. The idea of deliberately inviting annihilation was a thing incomprehensible. The retreat came to a halt. Then everybody sat down again, wondering, to await the upshot of it. The Admiral himself was as surprised as any one. He paused in the door, with his red handkerchief half raised to his sweating face, and contemplated the daring reptile in the corner. "'Certain of it? Am I certain of it?' Do you think I've been lying about it? What do you take me for? Anybody that don't know that circumstance don't know anything. A child ought to know it. Read up your history. Read it up. And don't come asking a man, if he's certain about a bit of ABC stuff, that the very southern niggers know all about. Here the Admiral's fires began to wax hot. The atmosphere thickened. The coming earthquake rumbled. He began to thunder and lighten. Within three minutes his volcano was in full eruption, and he was discharging flames and ashes of indignation, belching black volumes of foul history aloft, 
and vomiting red-hot torrents of profanity from his crater. Meantime, Williams sat silent, and apparently deeply and earnestly interested in what the old man was saying. By and by, when the lull came, he said in the most deferential way, and with the gratified air of a man who has had a mystery cleared up which had been puzzling him uncomfortably, "'Now I understand it. I always thought I knew that piece of history well enough, but was still afraid to trust it, because there was not that convincing particularity about it that one likes to have in history. But when you mentioned every name the other day, and every date, and every little circumstance, in their just order and sequence, I said to myself, this sounds something like, well, this is history, this is putting it in a shape that gives a man confidence. And, I said to myself afterward, I will just ask the Admiral if he is perfectly certain about the details, and if he is, I will come out and thank him for clearing this matter up for me. And that is what I want to do now for until you set that matter right, it was nothing but just a confusion in my mind without head or tail to it. Nobody ever saw the Admiral look so mollified before and so pleased. Nobody had ever received his bogus history as gospel before. His genuineness had always been called in question either by words or looks, but here was a man that not only swallowed it all down, but was grateful for the dose he was taken aback. He hardly knew what to say. Even his profanity failed him. Now Williams continued, modestly and earnestly, "'But, Admiral, in saying that this was the first stone thrown, and that this precipitated the war, you have overlooked a circumstance which you are perfectly familiar with, but which has escaped your memory. Now I grant you that what you have stated is correct in every detail, to wit, that on the 16th of October, 1860, two Massachusetts clergymen named Waite and Granger went in disguise to the house of John Moody in Rockport at dead of night, and dragged forth two southern women and their two little children, and after tarring and feathering them, conveyed them to Boston and burned them alive in the State House Square. And I also grant your proposition that this deed is what led to the secession of South Carolina on the 20th of December following very well. Here the company were pleasantly surprised to hear Williams proceed to come back at the Admiral with his own invincible weapon, clean, pure, manufactured history without a word of truth in it. Very well, I say, but, Admiral, why overlook the Willis and Morgan case in South Carolina? You are too well informed a man not to know all about that circumstance. Your arguments and your conversations have shown you to be intimately conversant with every detail of this national quarrel. You develop matters of history every day that show plainly that you are no smatterer in it, content to nibble about the surface, but a man who has searched the depths and possessed yourself of everything that has a bearing upon the great question. Therefore, let me just recall to your mind that Willis and Morgan case— though I see by your face that the whole thing is already passing through your memory at this moment. On the 12th of August, 1860, two months before the Waite and Granger affair, two South Carolina clergymen named John H. Morgan and Winthrop L. Willis, one a Methodist and the other an old-school Baptist, disguised themselves and went at midnight to the house of a planter named Thompson, Archibald F. Thompson 
vice-president under Thomas Jefferson, and took thence at midnight his widowed aunt, a northern woman, and her adopted child, an orphan named Mortimer Hay, afflicted with epilepsy and suffering at the time from white swelling on one of his legs, and compelled to walk on crutches in consequence and the two ministers, in spite of the pleadings of the victims, dragged them to the bush, tarred and feathered them, and afterward burned them at the stake in the city of Charleston. You remember perfectly well what a stir it made. You remember perfectly well that even the Charleston courier stigmatized the act as being unpleasant, of questionable propriety, and scarcely justifiable, and likewise that it would not be matter of surprise if retaliation ensued and you remember also that this thing was the cause of the massachusetts outrage who indeed were the two massachusetts ministers and who were the two southern women they burned i do not need to remind you admiral with your intimate knowledge of history that waite was the nephew of the woman burned in charleston that granger was her cousin in the second degree and that the woman they burned in boston was the wife of john h morgan and the still-loved but divorced wife of Winthrop L. Willis. Now, Admiral, it is only fair that you should acknowledge that the first provocation came from the southern preachers, and that the northern ones were justified in retaliating. In your arguments you never yet have shown the least disposition to withhold a just verdict, or be in any wise unfair, when authoritative history condemned your position, therefore I have no hesitation in asking you to take the original blame from the Massachusetts ministers in this matter, and transfer it to the South Carolina clergymen, where it justly belongs. The Admiral was conquered. This sweet-spoken creature, who swallowed his fraudulent history as if it were the bread of life, basked in his furious blasphemy as if it were generous sunshine, found only calm, even-handed justice in his rampart partisanship, and flooded him with invented history so sugar-coated with flattery and deference that there was no rejecting it, was too many for him. He stammered some awkward, profane sentences about the <coughs> Willis and Morgan business, having escaped his memory, but that he remembered it now, and then, under pretense of giving Fan some medicine for an imaginary cough, drew out of the battle, and went away a vanquished man. Then cheers and laughter went up, and Williams, the ship's benefactor, was a hero. The news went about the vessel, champagne was ordered, and enthusiastic reception instituted in the smoking-room, and everybody flocked thither to shake hands with the conqueror. The wheelman said afterward that the admiral stood up behind the pilot-house, and ripped and cursed all to himself, till he loosened the smokestack guys, and becalmed the mainsail. The admiral's power was broken. After that, if he began argument, somebody would bring Williams, and the old man would grow weak, and begin to quiet down at once and as soon as he was done, Williams, in his dulcet, insinuating way, would invent some history, referring for proof to the old man's own excellent memory, and to copies of the old guard, known not to be in his possession, that would turn the tables completely, and leave the admiral all aboard and helpless. By and by he came to so dread Williams and his gilded tongue, that he would stop talking when he saw him approach and finally ceased to mention politics altogether, and from that time forward there was entire peace and serenity in the ship. 
End of chapter 62 This is chapter 63 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain, Chapter 63 On a certain bright morning the islands hove in sight, lying low on the lonely sea, and everybody climbed to the upper deck to look. After two thousand miles of watery solitude, the vision was a welcome one. As we approached, the imposing promontory of Diamond Head rose up out of the ocean, its rugged front softened by the hazy distance, and presently the details of the land began to make themselves manifest. First the line of beach, then the plumed coconut trees of the tropics, then cabins of the natives, then the white town of Honolulu, said to contain between twelve and fifteen thousand inhabitants spread over a dead level, with streets from twenty to thirty feet wide, solid and level as a floor, most of them straight as a line, and few as crooked as a corkscrew. The further I travelled through the town, the better I liked it. Every step revealed a new contrast, disclosed something I was unaccustomed to, in place of the grand mud-colored brown fronts of San Francisco, I saw dwellings built of straw, adobes, and cream-colored pebble-and-shell conglomerated coral, cut into oblong blocks and laid in cement, also a great number of neat white cottages with green window-shutters, in place of front yards like billiard-tables with iron fences around them, I saw these homes surrounded by ample yards, thickly clad with green grass, and shaded by tall trees, through whose dense foliage the sun could scarcely penetrate. In place of the customary geranium, kaya lily, etc., languishing in dust and general debility, I saw luxurious banks and thickets of flowers, fresh as a meadow after a rain, and glowing with the richest dyes. In place of the dingy horrors of San Francisco's pleasure-grove, the willows, I saw huge-bodied, wide-spreading forest-trees with strange names and stranger appearance, trees that cast a shadow like a thunder-cloud, and were able to stand alone without being tied to green poles. In place of goldfish, wiggling around in glass globes, assuming countless shades and degrees of distortion through the magnifying and diminishing qualities of their transparent prison-houses, I saw cats, tom-cats, marianne-cats, long-tailed cats, bob-tailed cats, blind-cats, one-eyed cats, wall-eyed cats, cross-eyed cats, gray cats, black cats, white cats, yellow cats, striped cats, spotted cats, tame cats, wild cats, singed cats, individual cats, groups of cats, platoons of cats, companies of cats, regiments of cats, armies of cats, multitudes of cats, millions of cats, and all of them sleek, fat, lazy, and sound asleep. I looked on a multitude of people, some white, in white coats, vests, pantaloons, even white cloth shoes, made snowy with chalk duly laid on every morning, but the majority of the people were almost as dark as negroes, women with comely features, fine black eyes, rounded forms inclining to voluptuous, 
clad in a single bright red or white garment that fell free and unconfined from shoulder to heel long black hair falling loose gypsy hats encircled with wreaths of natural flowers of a brilliant carmine tint plenty of dark men in various costumes and some with nothing on but a battered stove-pipe hat tilted on the nose and a very scant breech-clout certain smoke-dried children were clothed in nothing but sunshine a very neat-fitting and picturesque apparel indeed in place of roughs and rowdies staring and blackguarding on the corners i saw long-haired saddle-colored sandwich island maidens sitting on the ground in the shade of corner houses gazing indolently at whatever or whoever happened along instead of wretched cobblestone pavements i walked on a firm foundation of coral built up from the bottom of the sea by the absurd but persevering insect of that name with a light layer of lava and cinders overlying the coral belched up out of the fathomless perdition long ago through the seared and blackened crater that stands dead and harmless in the distance now instead of cramped and crowded street-cars i met dusky native women sweeping by free as the wind on fleet horses and astride with gaudy riding-sashes streaming like banners behind them instead of combined stenches of chinadom and brannan street slaughter-houses i breathed the balmy fragrance of jessamine oleander and the pride of india in place of the hurry and bustle and noisy confusion of san francisco i moved in the midst of a summer calm as tranquil as dawn in the garden of eden in place of the golden city's skirting sand-hills and the placid bay i saw on the one side a framework of tall precipitous mountains close at hand clad in refreshing green and cleft by deep cool chasm-like valleys and in front the grand sweep of the ocean a brilliant transparent green near the shore bound and bordered by a long white line of foamy spray dashing against the reef and further out the dead blue water of the deep sea flecked with white caps and in the far horizon a single lonely sail a mere accent mark to emphasize a slumberous calm and a solitude that were without sound or limit when the sun sank down the one intruder from other realms and persistent in suggestions of them it was tranced luxury to sit in the perfumed air and forget that there was any world but these enchanted islands it was such ecstasy to dream and dream till you got a bite a scorpion bite then the first duty was to get up out of the grass and kill the scorpion and the next to bathe the bitten place with alcohol or brandy and the next to resolve to keep out of the grass in future then came an adjournment to the bedchamber and the pastime of writing up the day's journal with one hand and the destruction of mosquitoes with the other a whole community of them at a slap then observing an enemy approaching a hairy tarantula on stilts why not set the spittoon on him it is done and the projecting ends of his paws give a luminous idea of the magnitude of his reach then to bed and become a promenade for a centipede with forty-two legs on a side and every foot hot enough to burn a hole through a rawhide more soaking with alcohol and a resolution to examine the bed before entering it in future then wait and suffer till all the mosquitoes in the neighborhood have crawled in under the bar then slip out quietly shut them in and sleep peacefully on the floor till morning meantime 
it is comforting to curse the tropics in occasional wakeful intervals. We had an abundance of fruit in Honolulu, of course. Oranges, pineapples, bananas, strawberries, lemons, limes, mangoes, guavas, melons, and a rare and curious luxury called the chiramoya, which is deliciousness itself. Then there is the tamarind. I thought tamarinds were made to eat, but that was probably not the idea. I ate several, and it seemed to me that they were rather sour that year. They pursed up my lips till they resembled the stem-end of a tomato, and I had to take my sustenance through a quill for twenty-four hours. They sharpened my teeth till I could have shaved with them, and gave them a wire edge that I was afraid would stay. But a citizen said, no, it will come off when the enamel does, which was comforting at any rate. I found afterward that only strangers eat tamarinds, but they only eat them once. End of chapter 63This is chapter 64 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain, Chapter 64 In my diary of our third day in Honolulu, I find this. I am probably the most sensitive man in Hawaii tonight, especially about sitting down in the presence of my betters. I have ridden fifteen or twenty miles on horseback since five p.m., and, to tell the honest truth, I have a delicacy about sitting down at all. An excursion to Diamond Head and the King's Coconut Grove was planned today, time four-thirty p.m., the party to consist of half a dozen gentlemen and three ladies. They all started at the appointed hour except myself. I was at the government prison with Captain Fish and another whale-ship skipper, Captain Phillips, and got so interested in its examination that I did not notice how quickly the time was passing. Somebody remarked that it was twenty minutes past five o'clock, and that woke me up. It was a fortunate circumstance that Captain Phillips was along with his turnout, as he calls a top-buggy, that Captain Cook brought here in 1778, and a horse that was here when Captain Cook came. Captain Phillips takes a just pride in his driving and in the speed of his horse, and to his passion for displaying them I owe it that we were only sixteen minutes coming from the prison to the American hotel, a distance which has been estimated to be over half a mile. But it took some fearful driving. The captain's whip came down fast, and the blows started so much dust out of the horse's hide that during the last half of the journey we rode through an impenetrable fog and ran by a pocket-compass in the hands of Captain Fish, a whaler of twenty-six years' experience, who sat there through the perilous voyage as self-possessed as if he had been on the euchre-deck of his own ship, and calmly said, "'Port your helm, port,' from time to time, and "'Hold her a little free, steady, so-so,' and "'Luff, hard down to starboard,' and never once lost his presence of mind or betrayed the least anxiety by voice or manner." When we came to anchor at last, and Captain Phillips looked at his watch and said, Sixteen minutes! I told you it was in her. That's over three miles an hour. I could see he felt entitled to a compliment, and so I said I had never seen lightning go like that horse, and I never had. 
the landlord of the american said the party had been gone nearly an hour but that he could give me my choice of several horses that could overtake them i said never mind i preferred a safe horse to a fast one i would like to have an excessively gentle horse a horse with no spirit whatever a lame one if he had such a thing inside of five minutes i was mounted and perfectly satisfied with my outfit i had no time to label him this is a horse and so if the public took him for a sheep i cannot help it i was satisfied and that was the main thing i could see that he had as many fine points as any man's horse and so i hung my hat on one of them behind the saddle and swabbed the perspiration from my face and started i named him after this island oahu pronounced o wauhi the first gate he came to he started in i had neither whip nor spur and so i simply argued the case with him he resisted argument but ultimately yielded to insult and abuse he backed out of that gate and steered for another one on the other side of the street i triumphed by my former process within the next six hundred yards he crossed the street fourteen times and attempted thirteen gates and in the meantime the tropical sun was beating down and threatening to cave the top of my head in and i was literally dripping with perspiration he abandoned the gate business after that and went along peaceably enough but absorbed in meditation i noticed this latter circumstance and it soon began to fill me with apprehension i said to myself this creature is planning some new outrage some fresh deviltry or other no horse ever thought over a subject so profoundly as this one is doing just for nothing the more this thing preyed upon my mind the more uneasy i became until the suspense became almost unbearable and i dismounted to see if there was anything wild in his eye for i had heard that the eye of this noblest of our domestic animals is very expressive i cannot describe what a load of anxiety was lifted from my mind when i found that he was only asleep i woke him up and started him into a faster walk and then the villainy of his nature came out again he tried to climb over a stone wall five or six feet high i saw that i must apply force to this horse and that i might as well begin first as last i plucked a stout switch from a tamarind tree and the moment he saw it he surrendered he broke into a convulsive sort of a canter which had three short steps in it and one long one and reminded me alternately of the clattering shake of the great earthquake and the sweeping plunging of the ajax in a storm and now there can be no fitter occasion than the present to pronounce a left-handed blessing upon the man who invented the american saddle there is no seat to speak of about it one might as well sit in a shovel and the stirrups are nothing but an ornamental nuisance if i were to write down here all the abuse i expended on those stirrups it would make a large book even without pictures sometimes i got one foot so far through that the stirrup partook of the nature of an anklet sometimes both feet were through and i was handcuffed by the legs and sometimes my feet got clear out and left the stirrups wildly dangling about my shins even when i was in proper position and carefully balanced upon the balls of my feet there was no comfort in it on account of my nervous dread that they were going to slip one way or the other in a moment but the subject is too exasperating to write about a mile and a half from town i came to a grove of tall coconut trees with clean branchless stems reaching straight up sixty or seventy feet 
and topped with a spray of green foliage sheltering clusters of coconuts, not more picturesque than a forest of colossal ragged parasols with bunches of magnified grapes under them would be. I once heard a gouty northern invalid say that a coconut tree might be poetical, possibly it was, but it looked like a feather duster struck by lightning. I think that describes it better than a picture. And yet, without any question, there is something fascinating about a coconut tree, and graceful, too. About a dozen cottages, some frame and the others of native grass, nestled sleepily in the shade here and there. The grass cabins are of a grayish color, and are shaped much like our own cottages, only with higher and steeper roofs, usually, and are made of some kind of weed strongly bound together in bundles. The roofs are very thick, and so are the walls. The latter have square holes in them for windows. At a little distance these cabins have a furry appearance, as if they might be made of bear-skins. They are very cool and pleasant inside. The king's flag was flying from the roof of one of the cottages, and his majesty was probably within. He owns the whole concern thereabouts, and passes his time there frequently, on sultry days, laying off. The spot is called the King's Grove. Nearby is an interesting ruin, the meagre remains of an ancient heathen temple, a place where human sacrifices were offered up in those old bygone days, when the simple child of nature, yielding momentarily to sin when sorely tempted, acknowledged his error when calm reflection had shown it him, and came forward with noble frankness, and offered up his grandmother as an atoning sacrifice. In those old days, when the luckless sinner could keep on cleansing his conscience and achieving periodical happiness, as long as his relations held out. Long, long, before the missionaries braved a thousand privations to come and make them permanently miserable by telling them how beautiful and how blissful a place heaven is, and how nearly impossible it is to get there, and showed the poor native how dreary a place perdition is, and what unnecessarily liberal facilities there are for going to it, showed him how, in his ignorance, he had gone and fooled away all his kinfolks to no purpose, showed him what rapture it is to work all day long for fifty cents to buy food for next day with, as compared with fishing for pastime, and lolling in the shade through eternal summer, and eating of the bounty that nobody labored to provide but nature. How sad it is to think of the multitudes who have gone to their graves in this beautiful island, and never knew there was a hell. This ancient temple was built of rough blocks of lava, and was simply a roofless enclosure a hundred and thirty feet long and seventy wide, nothing but naked walls, very thick, but not much higher than a man's head. They will last for ages, no doubt, if left unmolested. Its three altars and other sacred appurtenances have crumbled and passed away years ago. It is said that in the old times thousands of human beings were slaughtered here, in the presence of naked and howling savages. If these mute stones could speak, what tales they could tell, what pictures they could describe, of fettered victims writhing under the knife, of massed forms straining forward out of the gloom, with ferocious faces lit up by the sacrificial fires, of the background of ghostly trees, of the dark pyramid of diamond head standing sentinel over the uncanny scene, and the peaceful moon looking down upon it through rifts in the cloud-rack. 
when kamehameha pronounced kamehameha the great who was a sort of a napoleon in military genius and uniform success invaded this island of oahu three-quarters of a century ago and exterminated the army sent to oppose him and took full and final possession of the country he searched out the dead body of the king of oahu and those of the principal chiefs and impaled their heads on the walls of this temple those were savage times when this old slaughter-house was in its prime the king and the chiefs ruled the common herd with a rod of iron made them gather all the provisions the masters needed build all the houses and temples stand all the expenses of whatever kind take kicks and cuffs for thanks drag out lives well favored with misery and then suffer death for trifling offenses or yield up their lives on the sacrificial altars to purchase favors from the gods for their hard rulers the missionaries have clothed them educated them broken up the tyrannous authority of their chiefs and given them freedom and the right to enjoy whatever their hands and brains produce with equal laws for all and punishment for all alike who transgress them the contrast is so strong the benefit conferred upon this people by the missionaries is so prominent so palpable and so unquestionable that the frankest compliment i can pay them and the best is simply to point to the condition of the sandwich islanders of captain cook's time and their condition to-day their work speaks for itself end of chapter sixty four This is Chapter 65 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 65. By and by, after a rugged climb, we halted on the summit of a hill which commanded a far reaching view. The moon rose and flooded mountain and valley and ocean with a mellow radiance, and out of the shadows of the foliage the distant lights of Honolulu glinted like an encampment of fireflies. The air was heavy with the fragrance of flowers. The halt was brief. Gaily laughing and talking, the party galloped on, and I clung to the pommel and cantered after. Presently we came to a place where no grass grew, a wide expanse of deep sand. They said it was an old battleground. All around everywhere, not three feet apart, the bleached bones of men gleamed white in the moonlight. We picked up a lot of them for mementos. I got quite a number of arm-bones and leg-bones of great chiefs, maybe, who had fought savagely in that fearful battle in the old days, when blood flowed like wine where we now stood and wore the choicest of them out on oahu afterward trying to make him go all sorts of bones could be found except skulls but a citizen said irreverently that there had been an unusual number of skull hunters there lately a species of sportsmen i had never heard of before nothing whatever is known about this place its story is a secret that will never be revealed the oldest natives make no pretense of being possessed of its history. They say these bones were here when they were children. They were here when their grandfathers were children. But how they came here, they can only conjecture. 
Many people believe this spot to be an ancient battleground, and it is usual to call it so. And they believe that these skeletons have lain for ages just where their proprietors fell in the great fight. Other people believe that Kamehameha I fought his first battle here. On this point I have heard a story which may have been taken from one of the numerous books which have been written concerning these islands. I do not know where the narrator got it. He said that when Kamehameha, who was at first merely a subordinate chief on the island of Hawaii, landed here, he brought a large army with him, and encamped at Waikiki. The Oahuans marched against him, and so confident were they of success that they readily acceded to a demand of their priests that they should draw a line where these bones now lie, and take an oath that, if forced to retreat at all, they would never retreat beyond this boundary. The priests told them that death and everlasting punishment would overtake any who violated the oath, and the march was resumed. Kamehameha drove them back step by step. The priests fought in the front rank, and exhorted them both by voice and inspiring example to remember their oath, to die if need be, but never cross the fatal line. The struggle was manfully maintained, but at last the chief priest fell, pierced to the heart with a spear, and the unlucky omen fell like a blight upon the brave souls at his back. With a triumphant shout the invaders pressed forward. The line was crossed. The offended gods deserted the despairing army, and, accepting the doom their perjury had brought upon them, they broke and fled over the plain where Honolulu stands now. Up the beautiful Nuanu Valley, paused a moment, hemmed in by precipitous mountains on either hand, and the frightful precipice of the Paris in front, and then were driven over a sheer plunge of six hundred feet. The story is pretty enough, but Mr. Jarvis's excellent history says the Oahuans were entrenched in Nuanu Valley, that Kamehameha ousted them, routed them, pursued them up the valley, and drove them over the precipice. He makes no mention of our boneyard at all in his book. Impressed by the profound silence and repose that rested over the beautiful landscape, and being, as usual, in the rear, I gave voice to my thoughts. I said, What a picture is here slumbering in the solemn glory of the moon! How strong the rugged outlines of the dead volcano stand out against the clear sky! What a snowy fringe marks the bursting of the surf over the long, curved reef! How calmly the dim city sleeps yonder in the plain! How soft the shadows lie upon the stately mountains that border the dream-haunted Maua Valley! What a grand pyramid of billowy clouds towers above the storied Paris! How the grim warriors of the past seem flocking in ghostly squadrons to their ancient battlefield again! How the wails of the dying well up from the— at this point the horse called Oahu sat down in the sand. Sat down to listen, I suppose. Never mind what he heard. I stopped apostrophizing, and convinced him that I was not a man to allow contempt of court on the part of a horse. I broke the backbone of a chief over his rump, and set out to join the cavalcade again. Very considerably fagged out, we arrived in town at nine o'clock at night, myself in the lead, for when my horse finally came to understand that he was homeward bound and hadn't far to go, he turned his attention strictly to business. 
this is a good time to drop in a paragraph of information there is no regular livery stable in honolulu or indeed in any part of the kingdom of hawaii therefore unless you are acquainted with wealthy residents who all have good horses you must hire animals of the wretchedest description from the kanakas i e natives any horse you hire even though it be from a white man is not often of much account because it will be brought in for you from some ranch and has necessarily been leading a hard life if the kanakas who have been caring for him inveterate riders they are have not ridden him half to death every day themselves you can depend upon it they have been doing the same thing by proxy by clandestinely hiring him out at least so i am informed the result is that no horse has a chance to eat drink rest recuperate or look well or feel well and so strangers go about the islands mounted as i was to-day in hiring a horse from a kanaka you must have all your eyes about you because you can rest satisfied that you are dealing with a shrewd unprincipled rascal you may leave your door open and your trunk unlocked as long as you please and he will not meddle with your property he has no important vices and no inclination to commit robbery on a large scale but if he can get ahead of you in the horse business he will take a genuine delight in doing it this trait is characteristic of horse jockeys the world over is it not he will overcharge you if he can he will hire you a fine-looking horse at night anybody's may be the king's if the royal steed be in a convenient view and bring you the mate to my oahu in the morning and contend that it is the same animal if you make trouble he will get out by saying it was not himself who made the bargain with you but his brother who went out in the country this morning they have always got a brother to shift the responsibility upon a victim said to one of these fellows one day but i know i hired the horse of you because i noticed that scar on your cheek the reply was not bad oh yes yes uh, my brother all the same we twins a friend of mine j smith hired a horse yesterday the kanaka warranting him to be in excellent condition smith had a saddle and blanket of his own and he ordered the kanaka to put these on the horse the kanaka protested that he was perfectly willing to trust the gentleman with the saddle that was already on the animal but smith refused to use it the change was made then smith noticed that the kanaka had only changed the saddles and had left the original blanket on the horse he said he forgot to change the blankets and so to cut the bother short smith mounted and rode away the horse went lame a mile from town and afterward got to cutting up some extraordinary capers smith got down and took off the saddle but the blanket stuck fast to the horse glued to a procession of raw places the kanaka's mysterious conduct stood explained another friend of mine bought a pretty good horse from a native a day or two ago after a tolerably thorough examination of the animal he discovered to-day that the horse was as blind as a bat in one eye he meant to have examined that eye and came home with a general notion that he had done it but he remembers now that every time he made the attempt his attention was called to something else by his victimizer one more instance and then i will pass to something else i am informed that when a certain mr l a visiting stranger was here he bought a pair of very respectable-looking match horses from a native 
they were in a little stable with a partition through the middle of it, one horse in each apartment. Mr. L. examined one of them critically through a window, the Kanaka's brother having gone to the country with the key, and then went around the house and examined the other through a window on the other side. He said it was the neatest match he had ever seen, and paid for the horses on the spot. Whereupon the Kanaka departed to join his brother in the country. The fellow had shamefully swindled L. There was only one match-horse, and he had examined his starboard side through one window, and his port side through another. I decline to believe this story, but I give it because it is worth something as a fanciful illustration of a fixed fact, namely that the Kanaka horse-jockey is fertile in invention and elastic in conscience. You can buy a pretty good horse for forty or fifty dollars, and a good enough horse for all practical purposes for two dollars and a half. I estimate Oahu to be worth somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty-five cents. A good deal better animal than he is was sold here day before yesterday for a dollar and seventy-five cents, and sold again today for two dollars and twenty-five cents. Williams bought a handsome and lively little pony yesterday for ten dollars, and about the best common horse on the island and he is a really good one, sold yesterday with Mexican saddle and bridle for seventy dollars, a horse which is well and widely known, and greatly respected for his speed, good disposition, and everlasting bottom. You give your horse a little grain once a day, it comes from San Francisco and is worth about two cents a pound, and you give him as much hay as he wants. It is cut and brought to the market by natives, and is not very good. It is baled into long, round bundles about the size of a large man. One of them is stuck by the middle on each end of a six-foot pole, and the Kanaka shoulders the pole and walks about the streets between the upright bales in search of customers. These hay bales, thus carried, have a general resemblance to a colossal capital H. The hay bundles cost twenty-five cents apiece and one will last a horse about a day. You can get a horse for a song, a week's hay for another song, and you can turn your animal loose among the luxuriant grass in your neighbor's broad front yard without a song at all. You do it at midnight, and stable the beast again before morning. You have been at no expense thus far, but when you come to buy a saddle and bridle they will cost you from twenty to thirty-five dollars. You can hire a horse, saddle, and bridle at from seven to ten dollars a week, and the owner will take care of them at his own expense. It is time to close this day's record, bedtime. As I prepare for sleep, a rich voice rises out of the still night, and far as this ocean rock is toward the ends of the earth, I recognize a familiar home air. But the words seem somewhat out of joint. Waikiki Lantoni Oeka Huli Huli Wauhu. Translated, that means When We Were Marching Through Georgia. End of chapter sixty five. This is chapter sixty six of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain, Chapter 66 
passing through the market-place we saw that feature of honolulu under its most favorable auspices that is in the full glory of saturday afternoon which is a festive day with the natives the native girls by twos and threes and parties of a dozen and sometimes in whole platoons and companies went cantering up and down the neighboring streets astride of fleet but homely horses and with their gaudy riding habits streaming like banners behind them such a troop of free and easy riders in their natural home the saddle makes a gay and graceful spectacle the riding habit i speak of is simply a long broad scarf like a tavern tablecloth brilliantly colored wrapped around the loins once then apparently passed between the limbs and each end thrown backward over the same and floating and flapping behind on both sides beyond the horse's tail like a couple of fancy flags then slipping the stirrup irons between her toes the girl throws her chest forward sits up like a major general and goes sweeping by like the wind the girls put on all the finery they can on saturday afternoon fine black silk robes flowing red ones that nearly put your eyes out others as white as snow still others that discount the rainbow and they wear their hair in nets and trim their jaunty hats with fresh flowers and encircle their dusky throats with home-made necklaces of the brilliant vermilion-tinted blossom of the ohio and they fill the markets and the adjacent street with their bright presences and smell like a rag factory on fire with their offensive coconut oil occasionally you see a heathen from the sunny isles away down in the south seas with his face and neck tattooed till he looks like the customary mendicant from washu who has been blown up in a mine some are tattooed a dead blue color down to the upper lip masked as it were leaving the natural light yellow skin of micronesia unstained from thence down some with broad marks drawn down from hair to neck on both sides of the face and a strip of the original yellow skin two inches wide down the centre a gridiron with a spoke broken out and some with the entire face discolored with the popular mortification tint relieved only by one or two thin wavy threads of natural yellow running across the face from ear to ear and eyes twinkling out of this darkness from under shadowy hat-brims like stars in the dark of the moon moving among the stirring crowds you come to the poi merchants squatting in the shade on their hams in true native fashion and surrounded by purchasers the sandwich islanders always squat on their hams and who knows but they may be the old original ham sandwiches the thought is pregnant with interest the poi looks like common flour paste and is kept in large bowls formed of a species of gourd and capable of holding from one to three or four gallons poi is the chief article of food among the natives and is prepared from the taro plant the taro root looks like a thick or if you please a corpulent sweet potato in shape but is of a light purple color when boiled when boiled it answers as a passable substitute for bread the buck kanakas bake it underground then mash it up well with a heavy lava pestle mix water with it until it becomes a paste set it aside and let it ferment and then it is poi and an unseductive mixture it is almost tasteless before it ferments 
and too sour for a luxury afterward. But nothing is more nutritious. When solely used, however, it produces acrid humors, a fact which sufficiently accounts for the humorous character of the Kanakas. I think there must be as much of a knack in handling poi as there is in eating with chopsticks. The forefinger is thrust into the mess and stirred quickly round several times, and drawn as quickly out, thickly coated, just as if it were poulticed. The head is thrown back, the finger inserted in the mouth, and the delicacy stripped off and swallowed, the eye closing gently meanwhile in a languid sort of ecstasy. Many a different finger goes into the same bowl, and many a different kind of dirt and shade and quality of flavor is added to the virtues of its contents. Around a small shanty was collected a crowd of natives buying the awa root. It is said that but for the use of this root the destruction of the people in former times by certain imported diseases would have been far greater than it was, and by others it is said that this is merely a fancy. All agree that poi will rejuvenate a man who is used up, and his vitality almost annihilated, by hard drinking, and that in some kinds of diseases it will restore health after all medicines have failed. But all are not willing to allow to the awa the virtues claimed for it. The natives manufacture an intoxicating drink from it, which is fearful in its effects when persistently indulged in. It covers the body with dry, white scales, inflames the eyes, and causes premature decrepitude. Although the man before whose establishment we stopped has to pay a government license of eight hundred dollars a year for the exclusive right to sell awa root, it is said that he makes a small fortune every twelve months, while saloon-keepers who pay a thousand dollars a year for the privilege of retailing whiskey, etc., only make a bare living. We found the fish-market crowded, for the native is very fond of fish, and eats the article raw and alive. Let us change the subject. In old times here Saturday was a grand gala-day indeed. All the native population of the town forsook their labors, and those of the surrounding country journeyed to the city. Then the white folks had to stay indoors, for every street was so packed with charging cavaliers and cavalieresses that it was next to impossible to thread one's way through the cavalcades without getting crippled. At night they feasted, and the girls danced the lascivious hula-hula, a dance that is said to exhibit the very perfection of educated notion of limb and arm, hand, head, and body and the exactest uniformity of movement and accuracy of time. It was performed by a circle of girls with no raiment on them to speak of, who went through an infinite variety of motions and figures without prompting, and yet so true was their time, and in such perfect concert did they move, that when they were placed in a straight line, hands, arms, bodies, limbs, and heads waved, swayed, gesticulated, bowed, stooped, whirled, squirmed, twisted, and undulated, as if they were part and parcel of a single individual. And it was difficult to believe they were not moved in a body by some exquisite piece of mechanism. Of late years, however, Saturday has lost most of its quondam gala features. This weekly stampede of the natives interfered too much with labor and the interests of the white folks and by sticking in a law here, and preaching a sermon there, 
and by various other means they gradually broke it up. The demoralizing hula-hula was forbidden to be performed save at night, with closed doors, in presence of few spectators, and only by permission duly procured from the authorities, and the payment of ten dollars for the same. There are few girls nowadays able to dance this ancient national dance in the highest perfection of the art. The missionaries have Christianized and educated all the natives. They all belong to the church, and there is not one of them above the age of eight years but can read and write with facility in the native tongue. It is the most universally educated race of people outside of China. They have any quantity of books, printed in the Kanaka language, and all the natives are fond of reading. They are inveterate churchgoers. Nothing can keep them away. All this ameliorating cultivation has at last built up in the native women a profound respect for chastity in other people. Perhaps that is enough to say on that head. The national sin will die out when the race does, but perhaps not earlier. But doubtless this purifying is not far off, when we reflect that contact with civilization and the whites has reduced the native population from four hundred thousand, Captain Cook's estimate, to fifty-five thousand in something over eighty years. Society is a queer medley in this notable missionary, whaling, and governmental center. If you get into conversation with a stranger and experience that natural desire to know what sort of ground you are treading on by finding out what manner of man your stranger is, strike out boldly and address him as captain. Watch him narrowly, and if you see by his countenance that you are on the wrong tack, ask him where he preaches. It is a safe bet that he is either a missionary or captain of a whaler. I am now personally acquainted with seventy-two captains and ninety-six missionaries. The captains and ministers form one half of the population. The third-fourth is composed of common Kanakas and mercantile foreigners and their families, and the final-fourth is made up of high officers of the Hawaiian government, and there are just about cats enough for three apiece all around. A solemn stranger met me in the suburbs the other day, and said, "'Good morning, your reverence. Preach in the stone church yonder, no doubt?' "'No, I don't. I'm not a preacher.' "'Really, I beg your pardon, Captain. I trust you had a good season. How much oil?' "'Oil? What do you take me for? I'm not a whaler.' "'Oh, I beg a thousand pardons, Your Excellency. Major General in the household troops, no doubt. Minister of the Interior, likely. Secretary of War. First Gentleman of the Bedchamber. Commissioner of the Royal—' "'Stuff! I'm no official. I'm not connected in any way with the government.' "'Bless my life! Then—' Who the mischief are you? What the mischief are you? And how the mischief did you get here? And where in thunder did you come from? I'm only a private personage, an unassuming stranger, lately arrived from America. No, not a missionary, not a whaler, not a member of His Majesty's government, not even Secretary of the Navy. Ah, oh, heaven! It is too blissful to be true. Alas, I do but dream— and yet that noble, honest countenance, those oblique, ingenious eyes, that massive head, incapable of—of uh, of anything! Your hand! Give me your hand, bright waif! Excuse these tears! 
for sixteen weary years i have yearned for a moment like this and here his feelings were too much for him and he swooned away i pitied this poor creature from the bottom of my heart i was deeply moved i shed a few tears on him and kissed him for his mother i then took what small change he had and shoved end of chapter sixty six this is chapter sixty seven of roughing it this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit LibriVox.org. roughing it by mark twain chapter sixty seven i still quote from my journal i found the national legislature to consist of half a dozen white men and some thirty or forty natives it was a dark assemblage the nobles and ministers about a dozen of them altogether occupied the extreme left of the hall with david kalakaua the king's chamberlain and prince william at the head the president of the assembly his royal highness m kekuanawa kekuanawa is not of the blood royal he derives his princely rank from his wife who was a daughter of kamehameha the great under other monarchies the male line takes precedence of the female in tracing genealogies but here the opposite is the case the female line takes precedence the reason for this is exceedingly sensible and i recommend it to the aristocracy of europe they say it is easy to know who a man's mother was but um, etc etc and uh, the vice-president the latter a white man sat in the pulpit if i may so term it the president is the king's father he is an erect strongly built massive-featured white-haired tawny old gentleman of eighty years of age or thereabouts he was simply but well dressed in a blue cloth coat and white vest and white pantaloons without spot dust or blemish upon them he bears himself with a calm stately dignity and is a man of noble presence he was a young man and a distinguished warrior under that terrific fighter kamehameha the first more than half a century ago a knowledge of his career suggested some such thought as this this man naked as the day he was born and war-club and spear in hand has charged at the head of a horde of savages against other hordes of savages more than a generation and a half ago and reveled in slaughter and carnage has worshipped wooden images on his devout knees has seen hundreds of his race offered up in heathen temples as sacrifices to wooden idols at a time when no missionary's foot had ever pressed this soil and he had never heard of the white man's god has believed his enemy could secretly pray him to death has seen the day in his childhood when it was a crime punishable by death for a man to eat with his wife or for a plebeian to let his shadow fall upon the king and now look at him an educated christian neatly and handsomely dressed a high-minded elegant gentleman a traveller in some degree and one who has been the honoured guest of royalty in europe a man practised in holding the reins of an enlightened government and well versed in the politics of his country and in general practical information look at him sitting there presiding over the deliberations of a legislative body among whom are white men 
a grave, dignified, statesmanlike personage, and as seemingly natural and fitted to the place as if he had been born in it and had never been out of it in his lifetime. How the experiences of this old man's eventful life shame the cheap inventions of romance! The Christianizing of the natives has hardly even weakened some of their barbarian superstitions, much less destroyed them. I have just referred to one of these. It is still a popular belief that if your enemy can get hold of any article belonging to you, he can get down on his knees over it and pray you to death. Therefore, many a native gives up and dies merely because he imagines that some enemy is putting him through a course of damaging prayer. This praying an individual to death seems absurd enough at a first glance, but then, when we call to mind some of the pulpit efforts of certain of our own ministers, the thing looks plausible. In former times, among the islanders, not only a plurality of wives was customary, but a plurality of husbands likewise. Some native women of noble rank had as many as six husbands. A woman thus supplied did not reside with all her husbands at once, but lived several months with each in turn. An understood sign hung at her door during these months. When the sign was taken down, it meant, Next. In those days, woman was rigidly taught to know her place. Her place was to do all the work, take all the cuffs, provide all the food, and content herself with what was left after her lord had finished his dinner. She was not only forbidden by ancient law and under penalty of death to eat with her husband or enter a canoe, but was debarred under the same penalty from eating bananas, pineapples, oranges, and other choice fruits at any time or in any place. She had to confine herself pretty strictly to poi and hard work. These poor ignorant heathen seem to have had a sort of groping idea of what came of woman eating fruit in the Garden of Eden, and they did not choose to take any more chances. But the missionaries broke up this satisfactory arrangement of things. They liberated woman and made her the equal of man. The natives had a romantic fashion of burying some of their children alive when the family became larger than necessary. The missionaries interfered in this matter, too, and stopped it. To this day the natives are able to lie down and die whenever they want to, whether there is anything the matter with them or not. If a Kanaka takes a notion to die, that is the end of him. Nobody can persuade him to hold on. All the doctors in the world could not save him. A luxury which they enjoy more than anything else is a large funeral. If a person wants to get rid of a troublesome native, it is only necessary to promise him a fine funeral and name the hour, and he will be on hand to the minute, at least his remains will. All the natives are Christians now, but many of them still desert to the great shark-god for temporary succor in time of trouble. An eruption of the great volcano of Kilauea, or an earthquake, always brings a deal of latent loyalty to the great shark-god to the surface. It is common report that the king, educated, cultivated, and refined Christian gentleman as he undoubtedly is, still turns to the idols of his fathers for help when disaster threatens. A planter caught a shark, and one of his Christianized natives testified his emancipation from the thrall of ancient superstition 
by assisting to dissect the shark after a fashion forbidden by his abandoned creed. But remorse shortly began to torture him. He grew moody and sought solitude, brooded over his sin, refused food, and finally said he must die and ought to die, for he had sinned against the great shark-god and could never know peace any more. He was proof against persuasion and ridicule, and in the course of a day or two took to his bed and died, although he showed no symptom of disease. His young daughter followed his lead and suffered a like fate within the week. Superstition is ingrained in the native blood and bone, and it is only natural that it should crop out in time of distress. Wherever one goes in the islands, he will find small piles of stones by the wayside, covered with leafy offerings, placed there by the natives to appease evil spirits or honor local deities belonging to the mythology of former days. In the rural districts of any of the islands, the traveller hourly comes upon parties of dusky maidens bathing in the streams or in the sea without any clothing on, and exhibiting no very intemperate zeal in the matter of hiding their nakedness. When the missionaries first took up their residence in Honolulu, the native women would pay their families frequent friendly visits, day by day, not even clothed with a blush. It was found a hard matter to convince them that this was rather indelicate. Finally, the missionaries provided them with long, loose, calico robes, and that ended the difficulty, for the women would troop through the town stark naked with their robes folded under their arms, march to the missionary houses, and then proceed to dress. The natives soon manifested a strong proclivity for clothing, but it was shortly apparent that they only wanted it for grandeur. The missionaries imported a quantity of hats, bonnets, and other male and female wearing apparel, instituted a general distribution, and begged the people not to come to church naked next Sunday as usual. And they did not. But the national spirit of unselfishness led them to divide up with neighbors who were not at the distribution, and next Sabbath the poor preachers could hardly keep countenance before their vast congregations. In the midst of the reading of a hymn, a brown, stately dame would sweep up the aisle with a world of airs, with nothing in the world on but a stove-pipe hat and a pair of cheap gloves. Another dame would follow, tricked out in a man's shirt, and nothing else. Another one would enter with a flourish, with simply the sleeves of a bright calico dress tied around her waist, and the rest of the garment dragging behind like a peacock's tail off-duty. A stately buck, Kanaka, would stalk in with a woman's bonnet on, wrong side before, only this, and nothing more. After him would stride his fellow with the legs of a pair of pantaloons tied around his neck, the rest of his person untrammeled. In his rear would come another gentleman, simply gotten up in a fiery necktie and a striped vest. The poor creatures were beaming with complacency and wholly unconscious of any absurdity in their appearance. They gazed at each other with happy admiration, and it was plain to see that the young girls were taking note of what each other had on, as naturally as if they had always lived in a land of Bibles, and knew what churches were made for. Here was the evidence of a dawning civilization. The spectacle which the congregation presented was so extraordinary, and withal so moving, that the missionaries found it difficult to keep to the text and go on with the services. And by and by, when the simple children of the sun began a general swapping of garments in open meeting, 
and produce some irresistibly grotesque effects in the course of redressing, there was nothing for it but to cut the thing short with the benediction and dismiss the fantastic assemblage. In our country children play keep house, and in the same high-sounding but miniature way the grown folk here, with the poor little material of slender territory and meagre population, play empire. There is his Royal Majesty the King, with a New York detective's income of thirty or thirty-five thousand dollars a year from the royal civil list and the royal domain. He lives in a two-story frame palace. And there is the royal family, the customary hive of royal brothers, sisters, cousins, and other noble drones and vagrants usual to monarchy, all with a spoon in the national pap-dish, and all bearing such titles as his or her royal highness the prince or princess so-and-so. Few of them can carry their royal splendors far enough to ride in carriages, however. They sport the economical Kanaka horse, or hoof it with the plebeians. Then there is His Excellency the Royal Chamberlain, a sinecure, for His Majesty dresses himself with his own hands, except when he is ruralizing at Waikiki, and then he requires no dressing. Next we have His Excellency the Commander-in-Chief of the Household Troops, whose forces consist of about the number of soldiers usually placed under a corporal in other lands. Next comes the Royal Steward and the Grand Equerry-in-Waiting, high dignitaries with modest salaries and little to do. Then we have His Excellency, the First Gentleman of the Bedchamber, an office as easy as it is magnificent. Next we come to His Excellency, the Prime Minister, a renegade American from New Hampshire, all jaw, vanity, bombast, and ignorance, a lawyer of shyster caliber, a fraud by nature, a humble worshipper of the sceptre above him, a reptile never tired of sneering at the land of his birth, or glorifying the ten-acre kingdom that has adopted him. Salary, four thousand dollars a year, vast consequence, and no perquisites. Then we have His Excellency the Imperial Minister of Finance, who handles a million dollars of public money a year, sends in his annual budget with great ceremony, talks prodigiously of finance, suggests imposing schemes for paying off the national debt, of $150,000, and does it all for $4,000 a year, and unimaginable glory. Next we have His Excellency the Minister of War, who holds sway over the royal armies. They consist of 230 uniformed Kanakas, mostly brigadier generals, and if the country ever gets into trouble with a foreign power we shall probably hear from them. I knew an American whose copper-plate visiting-card bore this impressive legend, Lieutenant-Colonel in the Royal Infantry. To say that he was proud of this distinction is stating it but tamely. The Minister of War has also in his charge some venerable swivels on Punchbowl Hill, wherewith royal salutes are fired when foreign vessels of war enter the port. Next comes His Excellency the Minister of the Navy, a nabob who rules the Royal Fleet a steam-tug, and a sixty-ton schooner. And next comes His Grace, the Lord Bishop of Honolulu, the chief dignitary of the established church, for when the American Presbyterian missionaries had completed the reduction of the nation to a compact condition of Christianity, native royalty stepped in, and erected the grand dignity of an established Episcopal church over it, and imported a cheap ready-made bishop from England to take charge. 
the chagrin of the missionaries has never been comprehensively expressed to this day profanity not being admissible next comes his excellency the minister of public instruction next their excellencies the governors of oahu hawaii etc and after them a string of high sheriffs and other small fry too numerous for computation then there are their excellencies the envoy extraordinary and the minister plenipotentiary of his imperial majesty the emperor of the french her british majesty's minister the minister resident of the united states and some six or eight representatives of other foreign nations all with sounding titles imposing dignity and prodigious but economical state imagine all this grandeur in a playhouse kingdom whose population falls absolutely short of sixty thousand souls the people are so accustomed to nine-jointed titles and colossal magnates that a foreign prince makes very little more stir in honolulu than a western congressman does in new york and let it be borne in mind that there is a strictly defined court costume of so stunning a nature that it would make the clown in a circus look tame and commonplace by comparison and each hawaiian official dignitary has a gorgeous vari-coloured gold-laced uniform peculiar to his office no two of them are alike and it is hard to tell which one is the loudest the king had a drawing-room at stated intervals like other monarchs and when these varied uniforms congregate there weak-eyed people have to contemplate the spectacle through smoked glass is there not a gratifying contrast between this latter-day exhibition and the one the ancestors of some of these magnates afforded the missionaries the sunday after the old-time distribution of clothing behold what religion and civilization have wrought end of chapter sixty seven this is chapter sixty eight of roughing it this is a librivox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain, Chapter 68 While I was in Honolulu, I witnessed the ceremonious funeral of the King's sister, Her Royal Highness the Princess Victoria. According to the royal custom, the remains had lain in state at the palace thirty days, watched day and night by a guard of honor and during all that time a great multitude of natives from the several islands had kept the palace grounds well crowded and had made the place a pandemonium every night with their howlings and wailings beating of tom-toms and dancing of the at other times forbidden hula-hula by half-clad maidens to the music of songs of questionable decency chanted in honor of the deceased the printed programme of the funeral procession interested me at the time and after what i have just said of hawaiian grandiloquence in the matter of playing empire i am persuaded that a perusal of it may interest the reader after reading the long list of dignitaries etc and remembering the sparseness of the population one is almost inclined to wonder where the material for that portion of the procession devoted to hawaiian population generally is going to be procured <coughs> undertaker royal school kawaiahao school roman catholic school maimai school honolulu fire department mechanics benefit union attending physicians knonohikis superintendents of the crown lands knonohikis of the private lands of his majesty 
Kononohiki's of the private lands of her late Royal Highness, Governor of Oahu and Staff, Hulumanu Military Company, Household Troops, the Prince of Hawaii's own Military Company, the King's Household Servants, Servants of Her Late Royal Highness, Protestant Clergy, the Clergy of the Roman Catholic Church, His Lordship Louis Maigret, the Right Reverend Bishop of Arathea, Vicar Apostolic of the Hawaiian Islands, the Clergy of the Hawaiian Reformed Catholic Church, His Lordship the Right Reverend Bishop of Honolulu, her Majesty Queen Emma's carriage, His Majesty's staff, carriage of Her Late Royal Highness, carriage of Her Majesty the Queen Dowager, the King's Chancellor, cabinet ministers, His Excellency the Minister Resident of the United States, H. B. M.'s Commissioner, H. B. M.'s Acting Commissioner, judges of Supreme Court, privy councillors, members of Legislative Assembly, consular corps, circuit judges, clerks of government departments, members of the bar, collector-general, custom-house officers and officers of the customs, marshal and sheriffs of the different islands, king's yeomanry, foreign residents, ahahui kahumanu, Hawaiian population generally, Hawaiian cavalry, police force. I resume my journal at the point where the procession arrived at the royal mausoleum. As the procession filed through the gate, the military deployed handsomely to the right and left and formed an avenue through which the long column of mourners passed to the tomb. The coffin was borne through the door of the mausoleum, followed by the king and his chiefs, the great officers of the kingdom, foreign consuls, ambassadors, and distinguished guests, Burlingame and General Van Valkenburg. Several of the Kahilis were then fastened to a framework in front of the tomb, there to remain until they decay and fall to pieces, or, forestalling this, until another scion of royalty dies. At this point of the proceedings the multitude set up such a heart-broken wailing as I hope I never hear again. The soldiers fired three volleys of musketry, the wailing being previously silenced to permit of the guns being heard. His Highness Prince William, in a showy military uniform, the true prince, this scion of the house overthrown by the present dynasty, he was formerly betrothed to the princess, but was not allowed to marry her, stood guard and paced back and forth within the door. The privileged few who followed the coffin into the mausoleum remained some time, but the king soon came out and stood in the door and near one side of it. A stranger could have guessed his rank, although he was so simply and unpretentiously dressed, by the profound deference paid him by all persons in his vicinity, by seeing his high officers receive his quiet orders and suggestions with bowed and uncovered heads, and by observing how careful those persons who came out of the mausoleum were to avoid crowding him, although there was room enough in the doorway for a wagon to pass, for that matter how respectfully they edged out sideways, scraping their backs against the wall, and always presenting a front view of their persons to His Majesty, and never putting their hats on until they were well out of the royal presence. He was dressed entirely in black, dress-coat and silk hat, and looked rather democratic in the midst of the showy uniforms about him. On his breast he wore a large gold star, which was half hidden by the lapel of his coat. He remained at the door a half-hour and occasionally gave an order to the men who were erecting the kahilis, ranks of long-handled mops made of gaudy feathers sacred to royalty, 
They are stuck in the ground around the tomb, and left there. Before the tomb. He had the good taste to make one of them substitute black crepe for the ordinary hempen rope he was about to tie one of them to the framework with. Finally he entered his carriage and drove away, and the populace shortly began to drop into his wake. While he was in view, there was but one man who attracted more attention than himself, and that was Harris, the Yankee Prime Minister. This feeble personage had crape enough around his hat to express the grief of an entire nation, and as usual he neglected no opportunity of making himself conspicuous and exciting the admiration of the simple Kanakas. Oh, noble ambition of this modern Richelieu! It is interesting to contrast the funeral ceremonies of the Princess Victoria with those of her noted ancestor, Kamehameha the Conqueror, who died fifty years ago, in 1819, the year before the first missionaries came. On the 8th of May, 1819, at the age of sixty-six, he died, as he had lived, in the faith of his country. It was his misfortune not to have come in contact with men who could have rightly influenced his religious aspirations. Judged by his advantages, and compared with the most eminent of his countrymen, he may be justly styled not only great, but good. To this day his memory warms the heart and elevates the national feelings of Hawaiians. They are proud of their old warrior king. They love his name. His deeds form their historical age and an enthusiasm everywhere prevails, shared even by foreigners who knew his worth, that constitutes the firmest pillar of the throne of his dynasty. In lieu of human victims, the custom of that age, a sacrifice of three hundred dogs attended his obsequies, no mean holocaust when their national value and the estimation in which they were held are considered. The bones of Kamehameha, after being kept for a while, were so carefully concealed that all knowledge of their final resting-place is now lost. There was a proverb current among the common people that the bones of a cruel king could not be hid. They made fish-hooks and arrows of them, upon which, in using them, they vented their abhorrence of his memory in bitter execrations. The account of the circumstances of his death, as written by the native historians, is full of minute detail but there is scarcely a line of it which does not mention or illustrate some bygone custom of the country. In this respect it is the most comprehensive document I have yet met with. I will quote it entire. When Kamehameha was dangerously sick, and the priests were unable to cure him, they said, Be of good courage, and build a house for the god, his own private god or idol, that thou mayest recover. The chiefs corroborated this advice of the priests, and a place of worship was prepared for Kukailimuku, and consecrated in the evening. They proposed also to the king, with a view to prolong his life, that human victims should be sacrificed to his deity, upon which the greater part of the people absconded through fear of death, and concealed themselves in hiding-places, till the taboo—taboo pronounced taboo—means prohibition—we have borrowed it—or sacred— the taboo was sometimes permanent, sometimes temporary, and the person or thing placed under taboo was for the time being sacred to the purpose for which it was set apart. In the above case the victims selected under the taboo would be sacred to the sacrifice, till the taboo in which destruction impended was passed. It is doubtful whether Kamehameha approved of the plan of the chiefs and priests to sacrifice men, 
as he was known to say, the men are sacred for the king, meaning that they were for the service of his successor. This information was derived from Liho Liho, his son. After this, his sickness increased to such a degree that he had not strength to turn himself in his bed. When another season, consecrated for worship at the new temple, Heau, arrived, he said to his son, Liho Liho, Go thou, and make supplication to thy God. I am not able to go, and will offer my prayers at home. When his devotions to his feathered God, Kukailimoku, were concluded, a certain religiously disposed individual, who had a bird god, suggested to the king that, through its influence, his sickness might be removed. The name of this god was Pua. Its body was made of a bird, now eaten by the Hawaiians, and called in their language Alai. Kamehameha was willing that a trial should be made, and two houses were constructed to facilitate the experiment but while dwelling in them he became so very weak as not to receive food. After lying there three days, his wives, children, and chiefs, perceiving that he was very low, returned him to his own house. In the evening he was carried to the eating-house, where he took a little food in his mouth, which he did not swallow, also a cup of water. The chiefs requested him to give them his consul, but he made no reply, and was carried back to the dwelling-house. But when near midnight, ten o'clock perhaps, he was carried again to the place to eat, but as before he merely tasted of what was presented to him. Then Kaikioa addressed him thus, Here we all are, your younger brethren, your son Liholiho, and your foreigner. Impart to us your dying charge that Liholiho and Kahumanu may hear. Then Kamehameha inquired, What do you say? Kaikioa repeated, your consuls for us. He then said, Move on in my good way, and he could proceed no further. The foreigner, Mr. Young, embraced and kissed him. Haopili also embraced him, whispering something in his ear, after which he was taken back to the house. About twelve he was carried once more to the house for eating, into which his head entered, while his body was in the dwelling-house immediately adjoining. It should be remarked that this frequent carrying of a sick chief from one house to another resulted from the taboo system then in force. There were at that time six houses, huts, connected with an establishment. One was for worship, one for the men to eat in, an eating-house for the women, a house to sleep in, a house in which to manufacture kappa, native cloth, and one where, at certain intervals, the women might dwell in seclusion. The sick was once more taken to his house when he expired. This was at two o'clock, a circumstance from which Leihoku derived his name. As he breathed his last, Kalaimoku came to the eating-house to order those in it to go out. There were two aged persons thus directed to depart. One went, the other remained on account of love to the king, by whom he had formerly been kindly sustained. The children also were sent away. Then Kalaimoku came to the house, and the chiefs had a consultation. One of them spoke thus, This is my thought. We will eat him raw. This sounds suspicious, in view of the fact that all Sandwich Island historians, white and black, protest that cannibalism never existed in the islands. However, since they only proposed to eat him raw, we won't count that. 
but it would certainly have been cannibalism if they had cooked him. M. T. Kahumanu, one of the dead king's widows, replied, Perhaps his body is not at our disposal. That is more properly with his successor. Our part in him, his breath, has departed. His remains will be disposed of by Liholiho. After this conversation, the body was taken into the consecrated house for the performance of the proper rites by the priest and the new king. The name of this ceremony is Uko, and when the sacred hog was baked, the priest offered it to the dead body, and it became a god, the king at the same time repeating the customary prayers. Then the priest, addressing himself to the king and chiefs, said, I will now make known to you the rules to be observed respecting persons to be sacrificed on the burial of this body. If you obtain one man before the corpse is removed, one will be sufficient. But after it leaves this house, four will be required. If delayed until we carry the corpse to the grave, there must be ten. But after it is deposited in the grave, there must be fifteen. Tomorrow morning there will be a taboo and if the sacrifice be delayed until that time, forty men must die. Then the high priest, Hewa Hewa, inquired of the chiefs, Where shall be the residence of King Liholiho? They replied, Where indeed? You of all men ought to know. Then the priest observed, There are two suitable places. One is Kau, the other is Kohala. The chiefs preferred the latter, as it was more thickly inhabited. The priest added, these are proper places for the king's residence, but he must not remain in Kona, for it is polluted. This was agreed to. It was now break of day. As he was being carried to the place of burial, the people perceived that their king was dead, and they wailed. When the corpse was removed from the house to the tomb, a distance of one chain, the procession was met by a certain man who was ardently attached to the deceased. He leapt upon the chiefs who were carrying the king's body. He desired to die with him on account of his love. The chiefs drove him away. He persisted in making numerous attempts, which were unavailing. Kalaimoka also had it in his heart to die with him, but was prevented by Hukio. The morning following Kamehameha's death, Liholiho and his train departed for Kohala, according to the suggestions of the priest, to avoid the defilement occasioned by the dead. At this time, if a chief died, the land was polluted, and the heirs sought a residence in another part of the country until the corpse was dissected and the bones tied in a bundle, which being done, the season of defilement terminated. If the deceased were not a chief, the house only was defiled, which became pure again on the burial of the body. Such were the laws on this subject. On the morning on which Liholiho sailed in his canoe for Kohala, the chiefs and the people mourned after their manner on occasion of a chief's death, conducting themselves like madmen and like beasts. Their conduct was such as to forbid description. The priests also put into action the sorcery apparatus, that the person who had prayed the king to death might die, for it was not believed that Kamehameha's departure was the effect either of sickness or old age. When the sorcerers set up by their fireplaces sticks with a strip of kappa flying at the top, the chief, Kiyomoku, Kaumau's brother, came in a state of intoxication and broke the flagstaff of the sorcerers, from which it was inferred that Kahumanu and her friends had been instrumental in the king's death. On this account they were subjected to abuse. 
you have the contrast now and a strange one it is this great queen kahumanu who was subjected to abuse during the frightful orgies that followed the king's death in accordance with ancient custom afterward became a devout christian and a steadfast and powerful friend of the missionaries dogs were and still are reared and fattened for food by the natives hence the reference to their value in one of the above paragraphs forty years ago it was the custom in the islands to suspend all law for a certain number of days after the death of a royal personage and then a saturnalia ensued which one may picture to himself after a fashion but not in the full horror of the reality the people shaved their heads knocked out a tooth or two plucked out an eye sometimes cut bruised mutilated or burned their flesh got drunk burned each other's huts maimed or murdered one another according to the caprice of the moment and both sexes gave themselves up to brutal and unbridled licentiousness and after it all came a torpor from which the nation slowly emerged bewildered and dazed as if from a hideous half-remembered nightmare they were not the salt of the earth those gentle children of the sun the natives still keep up an old custom of theirs which cannot be comforting to an invalid when they think a sick friend is going to die a couple of dozen neighbors surround his hut and keep up a deafening wailing night and day till he either dies or gets well no doubt this arrangement has helped many a subject to a shroud before his appointed time they surround a hut and wail in the same heartbroken way when its occupant returns from a journey this is their dismal idea of a welcome a very little of it would go a great way with most of us End of chapter 68This is chapter 69 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 69 Bound for Hawaii, a hundred and fifty miles distant, to visit the great volcano and behold the other notable things which distinguish that island above the remainder of the group we sailed from honolulu on a certain saturday afternoon in the good schooner boomerang the boomerang was about as long as two street-cars and about as wide as one she was so small though she was larger than the majority of the inter-island coasters that when i stood on her deck i felt but little smaller than the colossus of rhodes must have felt when he had a man-of-war under him i could reach the water when she lay over under a strong breeze when the captain and my comrade a mr billings myself and four other persons were all assembled on the little after portion of the deck which is sacred to the cabin passengers it was full there was not room for any more quality folks another section of the deck twice as large as ours was full of natives of both sexes with their customary dogs mats blankets pipes calabashes of poi fleas and other luxuries and baggage of minor importance as soon as we set sail the natives all lay down on the deck as thick as negroes in a slave pen and smoked conversed and spit on each other and were truly sociable the little low-ceiled cabin below was rather larger than a hearse 
and as dark as a vault. It had two coffins on each side—I uh, mean, two bunks. A small table, capable of accommodating three persons at dinner, stood against the forward bulkhead, and over it hung the dingiest whale-oil lantern that ever peopled the obscurity of a dungeon with ghostly shapes. The floor-room, unoccupied, was not extensive. One might swing a cat in it, perhaps, but not a long cat. The hold, forward of the bulkhead, had but little freight in it, and from morning till night a portly old rooster, with a voice like Balan's ass, and the same disposition to use it, strutted up and down in that part of the vessel, and crowed. He usually took dinner at six o'clock, and then, after an hour devoted to meditation, he mounted a barrel and crowed a good part of the night. He got hoarser all the time, but he scorned to allow any personal consideration to interfere with his duty, and kept up his labors in defiance of threatened diphtheria. Sleeping was out of the question when he was on watch. He was a source of genuine aggravation and annoyance. It was worse than useless to shout at him or apply offensive epithets to him. He only took these things for applause, and strained himself to make more noise. Occasionally, during the day, I threw potatoes at him through an aperture in the bulkhead, but he only dodged and went on crowing. The first night, as I lay in my coffin, idly watching the dim lamp swinging to the rolling of the ship, and snuffing the nauseous odors of bilge-water, I felt something gallop over me. I turned out promptly. However, I turned in again when I found it was only a rat. Presently something galloped over me once more. I knew it was not a rat this time, and I thought it might be a centipede, because the captain had killed one on deck in the afternoon. I turned out. The first glance at the pillow showed me repulsive sentinel perched upon each end of it, cockroaches as large as peach-leaves, fellows with long quivering antennae and fiery malignant eyes. They were grating their teeth like tobacco-worms, and appeared to be dissatisfied about something. I had often heard that these reptiles were in the habit of eating off sleeping sailors' toenails down to the quick, and I would not get in the bunk any more. I lay down on the floor, but a rat came and bothered me, and shortly afterward a procession of cockroaches arrived and camped in my hair. In a few moments the rooster was crowing, with uncommon spirit, and a party of fleas were throwing double somersaults about my person in the wildest disorder, and taking a bite every time they struck. I was beginning to feel really annoyed. I got up, and put my clothes on, and went on deck. The above is not overdrawn. It is a truthful sketch of inter-island schooner life. There is no such thing as keeping a vessel in elegant condition when she carries molasses and kanakas. It was compensation for my sufferings to come unexpectedly upon so beautiful a scene as met my eye to step suddenly out of the sepulchral gloom of the cabin and stand under the strong light of the moon, in the centre, as it were, of a glittering sea of liquid silver, to see the broad sails straining in the gale, the ship heeled over on her side, the angry foam hissing past her lee bulwarks, and sparkling sheets of spray dashing high over her bows and raining upon her decks to brace myself and hang fast to the first object that presented itself, with hat jammed down and coat-tails whipping in the breeze, and feel that exhilaration that thrills in one's hair and quivers down his backbone, when he knows that every inch of canvas is drawing, and the vessel cleaving through the waves at her utmost speed. There was no darkness, no dimness, 
no obscurity there. All was brightness. Every object was vividly defined. Every prostrate kanaka, every coil of rope, every calabash of poi, every puppy, every seam in the flooring, every bolthead, every object, however minute, showed sharp and distinct in its every outline, and the shadow of the broad mainsail lay black as a pall upon the deck, leaving Billings' white upturned face glorified, and his body in a total eclipse. Monday morning we were close to the island of Hawaii. Two of its high mountains were in view, Mauna Loa and Hualai. The latter is an imposing peak, but being only ten thousand feet high is seldom mentioned or heard of. Mauna Loa is said to be sixteen thousand feet high. The rays of glittering snow and ice that clasped its summit like a claw looked refreshing when viewed from the blistering climate we were in. One could stand on that mountain, wrapped up in blankets and furs to keep warm, and while he nibbled a snowball or an icicle to quench his thirst, he could look down the long sweep of its sides and see spots where plants are growing that grow only where the bitter cold of winter prevails. Lower down he could see sections devoted to production that thrive in the temperate zone alone, and at the bottom of the mountain he could see the home of the tufted cocoa-palms, and other species of vegetation that grow only in the sultry atmosphere of eternal summer. He could see all the climes of the world at a single glance of the eye, and that glance would only pass over a distance of four or five miles as the bird flies. By and by we took boat and went ashore at Kailua, designing to ride horseback through the pleasant orange and coffee region of Kona, and rejoin the vessel at a point some leagues distant. This journey is well worth taking. The trail passes along on high ground, say a thousand feet above sea-level, and usually about a mile distant from the ocean, which is always in sight, save that occasionally you find yourself buried in the forest, in the midst of a rank tropical vegetation, and a dense growth of trees, whose great boughs overarch the road, and shut out sun and sea and everything, and leave you in a dim, shady tunnel, haunted with invisible singing birds, and fragrant with the odor of flowers. It was pleasant to ride occasionally in the warm sun, and feast the eye upon the ever-changing panorama of the forest, beyond and below us, with its many tints, its softened lights and shadows, its billowy undulations sweeping gently down from the mountain to the sea. It was pleasant also, at intervals, to leave the sultry sun, and pass into the cool green depths of this forest, and indulge in the sentimental reflections under the inspiration of its brooding twilight and its whispering foliage. We rode through one orange grove that had ten thousand tree in it. They were all laden with fruit. At one farmhouse we got some large peaches of excellent flavor. This fruit, as a general thing, does not do well in the Sandwich Islands. It takes a sort of almond shape, and is small and bitter. It needs frost, they say, and perhaps it does. If this be so, it will have a good opportunity to go on needing it, as it will not be likely to get it. The trees from which the fine fruit I have spoken of came had been planted and replanted sixteen times, and to this treatment the proprietor of the orchard attributed his success. We passed several sugar plantations, new ones and not very extensive. The crops were, in most cases, third ratoons. Note, the first crop is called plant cane, 
subsequent crops which spring from the original roots without replanting are called ratoons almost everywhere on the island of hawaii sugar-cane matures in twelve months both ratoons and plant and although it ought to be taken off as soon as it tassels no doubt it is not absolutely necessary to do it until about four months afterward in kona the average yield of an acre of ground is two tons of sugar they say this is only a moderate yield for these islands but would be astounding for louisiana and most other sugar-growing countries the plantations in kona being on pretty high ground up among the light and frequent rains no irrigation whatever is required end of chapter sixty nine